For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's just get started with phone calls. And good morning, Paul. Good morning. Morning, sir. Um, you know, the reason I was calling you this morning, I have this uh, five-gallon uh, Schumard red oak that I planted last October. I, I called you a few months ago about it. Uh, uh-huh. The uh, tips of the leaves, some of the leaves were starting to turn brown, and you were thinking maybe it had just gotten too much water from all the the rain in the spring and so right. forth. And right. uh, since that time, I because I've been watering it probably every three or four days the mm-hmm. last couple of months uh, during the dry spell. And uh, some of the, the leaves can have continued to start turning brown on the tips, and maybe a quarter to a half of the leaf will get brown, not, not much more than about a handful of leaves. And there's some really small black dots I'm starting to notice on some of the leaves as well. And uh, I, I sent a few pictures to the nursery where I bought it, and they they thought it had something called anthracnose. And uh, I'm just wondering if you think that might be the correct diagnosis and you think it's still getting too much water. It's just hard to imagine it would be in the heat that we've got. Well, I tell you what you're seeing, if you went out and walked through the hill country or almost anywhere around, every every red oak you come to is going to have that, whether it's our hill country red oak or whether it's a Schumard red oak. Uh, August, September, the things just simply do that. Anthracnose uh, could be. Anthracnose uh, in oak trees is more of a nuisance. It's certainly not life-threatening by any means, and I certainly wouldn't recommend that uh, you know you do anything about it. I mean, if you want to soak a little cornmeal in water or something and spray on it, um, you can, but uh, seriously, if you if you look around, I think you'll find that uh, just about every red oak around is doing that, especially a young tree that hasn't had a chance to get a lot of roots established. Um, I It sounds to me like you're on a pretty good watering schedule. Of course, the best thing to do is just feel the soil at the base of the plant. When it's right about an inch deep, it's you know time to water it again. But I think every four or five days is going to be a pretty good guess as to what it would need in the heat. I would give it a little Garrett juice. I might give it a little bit of Super Thrive. And I would not expect the leaves to do anything much different. We're, you know, 60 days away from, from when the tree is going to shed its leaves anyway. Uh, the best indication of how the tree is doing is going to be when it leaves out next spring. So uh, this sounds to me kind of like a, just a red oak. That And red oaks are wimps compared to live oaks. They don't like it if they get too wet. They don't like it if they have prolonged dry 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 so i i can't really say that what you're seeing on that tree surprises me i don't think it's you know all that abnormal and it may do some of the things next summer depending on what the weather does but uh you're you're just looking at a red oak getting used to being out of its pot getting used to you know being on life support on a daily basis sitting in somebody's nursery so I, again, I'd fertilize it. I'd, uh, I'd, you know, be sure that root flare is exposed. I'd probably put some mulch over the roots, and I wouldn't worry about it. If uh, there was any one thing I would do 
on a regular basis is just every time you think about it, pick up your garden hose and just spray up and down the trunk and branches of the tree because it's still got mainly that smooth bark. It'll have that for two or three years. And as long as it has that, it will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark while it's trying to get its roots established. So uh, um, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think that tree's just behaving like red oaks usually do. What what area do you uh, do you live in, Paul? I live in uh, Blanco County, about five miles uh, up to eighty one from from town. Okay, if you plant any more, um, don't plant Schumard. Plant the uh, the Hill Country Red Oak. Schumard uh, east of you is a real good tree. Where you are, it's probably going to be an okay tree. But uh, it just, um, it, I, I think the hill country version of the red oak is long term going to be a, a little better tree for you than the Schumard will be. But uh, it's what you've got, it's what you've got planted. And, uh, I, you know, to me, you're just seeing what a, you know, what a red oak normally does is it's getting established because I've got, you know, hundreds of them on my ranch. And when I'm out and about, you know, looking things over, it's, uh, uh, everything, it, that's that's pretty much what they're doing right now, and I just don't think it's at all abnormal. Like, say, anthracnose is just a leaf-spotting disease. It may or may not be that. It may be circospora. There are a bunch of different little ones, but they're all nuisance type of things. Uh, now, there are plants where anthracnose can be a serious issue, but red oaks aren't one of them. It's just going to disfigure the leaves a little bit, but when you look at how small those spots are, the, the the tree, the leaf still has, you know, probably 95% of its green surface area to absorb the sun's energy, and that's what it's all about. It's I think what you're looking at is just strictly cosmetic damage. Uh, one, one other thing I, I didn't mention was uh, out of one of the little pruning cuts, the, you know, wounds that had been done at the nursery, that mm-hmm. some, uh, some kind of a fluid was oozing out of one of those couple of weeks ago and then it kind of stopped i didn't know if that was really anything else it didn't last very long but uh it's i didn't notice it yeah it's probably a little bacterial infection again nothing serious if you want to spray a little hydrogen peroxide around that area you certainly can but just um, trees go through a bunch of stress this one sounds like it's gone through slightly more stress uh, just because it was such a wet spring, and and red oaks much preferred on the dry side. But uh, um, I, I again, I'm not real concerned. Uh, you're just everything you're looking at is stress related, not a serious disease of any sort. And uh, I would like to say, I would check the base of the tree. Be sure that root flare is exposed because that's especially important on a red oak. If not, you need to pull the soil back you know, from the trunk all the way down to where you start seeing those, what will be the major roots of the tree flaring out from the from the base of the tree. And most every tree that comes into a nursery is already buried too deep in the container. And then if we just accidentally dig the hole a little bit too deep, uh, we just uh, make the problem even worse. But that that's the principal thing I will tell you to do. The spray moisture up and down the trunk will make a good deal of difference. If you want to soak a little whole ground cornmeal in water and spray that over the leaves of the tree and pour what's left around the base, uh, you'll be doing a good thing, and you'll be increasing that tree's resistance to oak wilt. Hopefully you don't have much of that in your area, but it certainly is potential on red oaks, uh, just like it is on live oaks. But um, 
I more than anything, I'm going to tell you just watch your watering, be a little patient with it. I'll bet you it comes out beautiful green, and hopefully the weather will be a little more cooperative next year, and we won't see any of this. But with red oaks, it's just uh, it's just part of the game. These trees normally wouldn't show any growth above ground the first year, I assume. Well, you're you're right on that. Um, you would have seen some growth, should have seen a little bit of growth back in the spring, but. All plants have what we call a compensation point, and that's how much energy it takes just to stay alive, just to maintain the metabolic processes it needs to just to stay alive through this heat. The compensation point is so high that the trees just have really nothing left over to put into growth above ground level. Hopefully, you know, you are getting some good root growth on it, but... Uh, um, no, I would not expect to see any growth really this fall. Uh, you should see probably maybe six inches of growth on it next spring. After that, uh, the growth rate should pick up to somewhere between one and three feet a year of growth. But uh, uh, more important right now is what the root system's doing, and I have no reason not to think that's not doing just fine. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's all I had for you. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, don't hesitate to call if you have any other concerns. I'll look forward to visiting with you. Thanks. Will do. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Bye. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, well, I'm looking at open board, so this would be a real good time to call if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. It is a holiday weekend for a lot of people. Uh, just running through the list of people that I, I talk about on a regular basis. I know that, uh, as I mentioned, Stone and Soil is going to be closed uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Our friends over at Fanix will be open Saturday and Sunday, but will be closed on Monday. Talked to Wild Bill over at uh, Wild Birds Unlimited yesterday. They're going to be open on Labor Day Monday, and uh, uh, they'd love to see you come by. (laughs) And I think they're just going to be there. They may close a little early, like 4 in the afternoon or something like that, but... uh, uh, if you need anything related to birding or if you have a uh, little gift shopping to do, Wild Birds Unlimited over there in Northwest Military at Hebner would be a uh, great place to go over and say hi to Bill. Because, uh, like I say, a lot of folks uh, know we're going to be closed at Shades of Green on Monday only. Most nurseries will be closed. Most of your material suppliers uh, will be closed. I mean, uh, after a long, hot summer, everybody wants uh, at least a little break from laboring on Labor Day. There's some fun coming up on uh, Friday the 13th, uh, September 13th. That's a couple of weeks away from now, uh, taking place out at the National Shooting Sports Complex. Uh, so I'll tell you about that in just a couple of minutes. But right now, Clint's got a question. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, sir? Oh, pretty good. I uh, just remembered, I uh, do have a question I'm supposed to ask my wife. Uh, it's going to be one of those strange ones. Okay. Uh, have you ever heard of a, any type of snake uh, entering through a septic system and coming up through the commode? No, I don't think that would ever happen. I will tell you how you could get a snake um, into, you know, uh, inside a toilet bowl or something like that. Uh, you you know, in order to make your plumbing function, it has to have uh, uh, it has to have an air vent, so to speak, and somewhere you've got a pipe coming about the top of your house. And uh, if that pipe gets plugged up, the toilet doesn't flush, nothing drains very well. And it's not uncommon uh, <laughs> to have anything from a, a squirrel to a snake go down that, but they're coming down from above. 
They're not coming up through the septic system. Okay. I just kind of wondering, Brandon, out in the country, he's always worried about it. You see a video from time to time where someone finds a snake <laughs> in the toilet. <laughs> Yes, and I I can imagine the consternation that would uh, cause um, if you want to be a good hubby and, uh, uh, you know, reduce her fears a bit. What you should do is uh, take a piece of uh, just hardware cloth or something like that, get up on the roof and, uh, you know, put it over, bend it over the top, put a tight piece of wire around the, the vent stack that comes up out of the roof because that's where something's going to get in, whether it's a rat or a mouse or a snake or anything else. There's really, um, I, you know, it's just, I, I, I've never heard of a snake coming up through the plumbing, but I have heard of plenty of them. Uh, coming down from the roof, and especially where you've got uh, Lindheimer's rat snake around. Now, down south, you don't have as many of them as we do in the hill country, uh, but these guys are up on your roof more often than you think, and very curious things. And that's where anything like that would come from. And like to say, a piece of hardware cloth over the top of that vent stack is not going to influence the function of the plumbing, but it will certainly keep uh, all those other critters from, from getting down in. Good deal. And what's your thoughts about having a bat house around the property to help keep down mosquitoes? Well, bats are very efficient, but um, bats rarely, rarely ever, you know, use bat houses on a long-term basis. Uh, when a bat comes out, a bat comes out in the evening, flies around and feeds for a while, goes up, hangs up, digests for a while, and then goes back out and feeds some more. I did a lot of research with bats out in West Texas in my college years. And um, the conditions where you have a bat house, I mean, they would have to be perfect as far as temperature, as far as humidity, which you're going to have trouble maintaining. So um, it's not unusual to have your uh, bats use a bat house as sort of a temporary roost, uh, maybe just a place to hang out for a little while uh, in the evenings. Maybe, you know, their most common bat is a Mexican free-tailed bat, which is a migratory bat. And uh, quite often when they're migrating north in the spring, south in the fall, uh, they will hang out and use your bat house for a little while. But uh, there are people who have spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to create caves in order to get bats to come in and use them and um uh i mean it's fine i i love bats and bats are very very important to our ecology but the chances of ever getting a bat to actually colonize raise young or anything like that in a bat house are pretty close to zero um again hang them out you'll see them come and go every now and then you may have two or three of them use it uh in their normal migratory pattern but on a day-to-day basis, it'd be very unusual for you to get a colony started. Good deal. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. If you do put out a bad house, be sure you put it in the shade. Be sure you put it at least six feet off the ground. And um, uh, you can buy bat guano as a fertilizer. Uh, any nursery either probably has or can get you a little bag of guano. And if you take some of that, put on some gloves and literally smear that stuff around, rub it around your bat house because it creates a very familiar smell to the bats and it greatly increases the chances that the bats will come around and check out your bat house. 
Now, what about Purple Martins? I put up Purple Martins' house, and the only thing I can get to move in are the Yellow Jackets. Well, and the Sparrows and things like that. Um, it right. it takes sometimes years to attract them. Uh, did you put up a house? Did you put up gourds? What kind of housing did you put up? It's uh, some of those metal prefab aluminum. Okay. Um, it's, you know, keep it clean and keep your fingers crossed. If you want to increase your chances of getting them in the spring, there's actually a recording that you can get at a nature store or something like that. It's called Dawn, D-A-W-N, Dawn Song. And you put a little uh, player out there and crank this thing up. It's uh, it's a sound that really carries if you've ever lived around a colony of purple martins. You know how noisy they are. And uh, getting the dawn, playing the dawn song is, uh, and you do this every morning and pretty much every evening, uh, increases the chances that the martins will find your house. And sometimes it takes a year. Uh, even with the dawn song, to try to get a colony started. But that's your best bet. I know people that have waited five or six years trying to attract the martins. But most important thing is keep keep the house clean. Be sure you've got a lot of open flyway around it. Don't put it anywhere near trees or anything else that would uh, influence their flyway. And uh, sooner or later they will come. But uh, getting dawn song, which you get at the Wild Birds Unlimited or just about any nature store, that will increase your chances uh, you will get the purple martins to come in. Now, purple martins are overrated as far as mosquito eaters. They eat a lot of bugs, but uh, martins fly during the day, mosquitoes fly at night. So your bats are actually have much more to do with uh, insect or with uh, mosquito control than your martins ever will. Well, that, well, getting back to the bats, uh, they... Uh, housing is the greatest. Is there anything else to attract the bats to come around your area and eat mosquitoes? Uh, put out a nightlight. <laughs> I, uh, you know, because anything that brings in a bunch of bugs, uh, I've got a, you know, in effect, a street light in effect, uh, you know, outside my barn just for security and other things like that. And uh, virtually every night in the summer, I'll see the bats flying around out there just picking off the bugs and things that are flying around the light. No, I thought I noticed that at night, so quick, it's like, was that a bat? Kind of like you ever see a mouse. The, yeah. Is that a mouse going by? So I feel like I've seen that a few times up yeah. there. And your little free-tailed bats actually look about like a mouse with wings and uh, very sharp little teeth. I, I collected many, many of them for research in mist nets uh, out in West Texas. But, yeah, anything you can do to create bugs coming around a light out in the open, not like a porch light, but if you've got a light on a pole outside, I can virtually promise you you'll have bites come around on a nightly basis to feed on those bugs. Good deal. All right, well, I appreciate it. appreciate the call, Clint. Have a great uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, Julie, Robert, and Sherry are our next three callers, and Julie's next. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, have, I have a question about hydrangeas. Okay. I have, um, when we first moved in, you know, like any other place, there's not much... Not much shade and stuff, and we've been here 25 years, and now we have all shade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had these hydrangeas underneath um, some small crepe myrtles. Now the crepe myrtles are, you know, 20, 30 feet high and mm-hmm. blooming beautifully, but the hydrangeas don't. And I was going to move them, and then I just wondered, would it just be better to just pull them up and buy new ones, or is it worth Trying to find a new place in the yard for the hydrangeas. Are yeah, where where are you located? Where are you located, Julie? 
Norman, Oklahoma. Okay, that's what I thought. You could grow hydrangeas a lot better than we can grow them in South Texas, but um, you just have to make the judgment call on uh, how strong and healthy your existing plants are. They transplant easily, you know, during the cooler weather. And so if they're still good, strong plants, remember the three things they love are copious moisture, rich soil, and shade. So uh, work a bunch of compost in a shady spot where you want to grow them. Be prepared to water them literally on a daily basis in the hot summer and a couple of times a week for the rest of the year. And uh, if you buy new ones, and if you're looking for the big colorful ones, I would look for the variety called Endless Summer because it's one that will rebloom for you. If you're looking for the hardiest of hydrangeas, they're the series that are called the Oakleaf hydrangeas. Uh, Alice Oakleaf is one of my favorites. But uh, um, where you are, I was going to ask you about Oakleaf. Yeah, because uh, the thing is, they're they're gorgeous plants, but they've quit blooming over the last several years. And I just, I thought they probably just didn't get enough sun. Well, just bright light is all they need. I would feed them very regularly. They like plenty of fertilizer. Hmm, that may be an issue. Because yeah. uh, uh, I, I, do, I do feed them. I do feed the um, crepe myrtles mm-hmm. a, a whole bunch every single month during the time that they're blooming. Okay. Well, but, what you need uh, to do, you need to be feeding in the fall when they're not in bloom because that's when they're actually forming, your hydrangeas are forming what they call the bud primordia that are what are going to give you all your flowers in the spring. So uh, actually this time of year now through October is the most important time of year to be fertilizing. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. You mean like through Christmas or to yeah. Christmas? Yeah, for sure. Oh, Okay, well, maybe I'll leave them and try that. They don't, they don't know. Well, I, plant I mean, some more. I, plant some more hydrangeas. Listen, I'm going to put you on hold. We can talk a little more off the air if you have more questions, because I have to go to news. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. All right, it's going to be Robert and then Sherry, and Robert is up first. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning there. Good morning. Well, I have uh, the plumerias, and uh, two of them, and both in identical pots. And uh, one was blooming, and the other one didn't. But um, as I was watering the one, I noticed that the uh, pot, the water seemed to be not going out of it. Right. So this was maybe three, four weeks ago. So I turned it on inside, and sure, there's no holes drilled in it. So I drilled a couple holes in it. Very good. And um, and I I held off on some watering for a while so that you know it could dry out a bit. But anyway, now the the leaves on that one are kind of droopy rather than perky like the the other one is. The other one, which is just five feet away from it, mm-hmm. they're about six foot tall. Um, anyway, I'm just worried that this guy I did give it some uh, Medina uh, liquid fertilizer okay. and and the Super Thrive, but even yesterday. Um, you know, the leaves just look not perky. Okay. When when you grab the stem, if you were to take and squeeze that, you know, cigar-like stem that it has, is it still firm? Is it getting soft and squishy, or is it still very firm to the touch? Well, yesterday it was firm. Okay. Uh, then I don't think you have anything to worry about. Here, Here's what 
you know, has happened. Uh, you know, every day your your plants, all your plants, including your plumerias, are taking up a bunch of water through their roots, and then in this kind of heat, they are transpiring. They're losing a lot of that moisture in the form of water vapor out through the leaves. Your one plumeria, when it stayed too wet, it did a lot of damage to the root system. It may have killed off you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the roots of the plant, which is not an issue long term because plumerias, a lot of people, you know, store them bare rooted all winter long. So plumeria can lose a lot of roots and still come back out. But right now with the 100 plus degree temperatures, with a little bit of breeze we have, your plant is simply losing more water out through the leaves that it can take up through the roots. And as a result, the leaves droop. Uh, it's not a sign of a severe problem. It's just telling you, hey, I lost some roots and it's going to take me a little while to regrow them. Uh, it would appreciate it uh, if the just only this one that's droopy, if you moved it into a little bit shadier area for a couple of months, uh, this is going to reduce the water loss. It's going to help it rebuild its root system more quickly. But what you're looking at is just simply the plant is losing moisture faster than it can take it up because a number of the roots were damaged on it. But it's going to come through without any problem. Like I say, plumerias are tough, tough, hardy plants. And, uh, um, gosh, you can lose every root on the plant, still have it survive and come back out. But uh, you did a good thing putting the uh, the Super Thrive in the uh, probably um, Astagrow is probably the Medina product you used. And it will bounce back on its own. But like I say, if you wanted to do it a little bit more quickly, that pot only, if you have a place where you could uh, put it that is protected from that hot afternoon sun, it will recover more quickly. Okay. Well, that's easy to do. Okay. Well, then uh, I can uh, feel better. I was afraid I was going to lose that. Oh, no. No. It's uh, it, it, about the only way people lose plumeries is that they leave, leave them out and let them freeze because, as you know, they are very cold-sensitive. Oh, yeah. But as far as uh, just being a tough plant that, they can really get beaten up and still come out just fine. <laughs> Plumerias are a real good plant to start with. Okay, very good. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure, Robert. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's talk to Sherry. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning. How good morning. Good morning. I'm good. How are you doing? <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, I do have a question, and um, it's about deer damage. Okay. Um. We have a very old Sheffalera in a pot on the patio, uh-huh. four foot wide and about five foot tall. Uh, it's been there since 1983, and it has a lot of sentimental value. Uh-huh. And the deer found it and almost totally defoliated it. Okay. Um, I was wondering what the possibility of it coming back, and would there be a possibility of taking a cutting and starting a new plant from it. Yes and yes um, on those. I would really prefer to wait until the plant gets back on its feet, so to speak. Now, uh, the deer primarily ate the foliage off. It's not a matter that they girdled it. They didn't rub all the bark on it or anything else. They just devoured a lot of the top of the plant. They did. There's only about six inches on the very top, and it's five foot high. That okay. Has any leaves left? And is this the standard Scheffler with a great big clusters of leaves, or is it the smaller one they call the Hawaiian Scheffler? I believe it would be standard. Okay, so of those, you know, you have that little stem comes out that then has somewhere between five and eight leaves on it. 
those leaves are probably each each little they're actually leaflets I should call them but each one of those is probably six inches long or two or three inches wide yes uh-huh. okay then that is the standard chef Lara um it will recover um it's believe me <laughs> these things go through hurricanes which is on everybody's mind right now uh, or typhoons in Hawaii and places like that and they just get the heck beaten out of them periodically and they come right back out I'm not concerned I would you know have that plant where the deer can't get to it but I would bet you that within two to four weeks you're going to have new sprouts coming out all over now by virtue of the way a chef layer grows, it's going to put on more top growth. The standard chef layer doesn't branch as well as the dwarf chef layer does from the base. So you're going to see most of the growth coming out, at least initially, at the top. Eventually, you'll probably have a couple little side sprouts come out at the bottom, and the plant will start filling in again. But uh, the deer just the deer set it back. But uh, this is this is not a fatal event. Um, I you know. Scheffler, especially the standard tough, hardy plants, um, obviously it was outside. Uh, if you bring it in, it needs to be in a really sunny window. Best place, at least for the next month or six weeks, if you have a place you can leave it outside where you can keep the deer away from it now, uh, it's going to recover faster outside than it would inside. But when you bring it inside, which you'll have to do for the winter anyway, uh, be sure it's in the sunniest room in your home. Yeah, it's kind of hard because it's in a... 26 by 26 pot. Oh, wow. It's really movable, <laughs> you know. And, and the plot, the thing itself, you know, is five feet up. So yeah. it's not, it can't be made a house plant. <laughs> right. Well, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's really just getting started. Uh, those chef lyras, uh in nature, um, you know, north part of, uh, of somewhere like New Zealand or somewhere that you would just see them growing wild, They'll be somewhere between 20 and 35 feet tall. So they eventually get to be very large plants, but uh, um, you just you will have to give it winter protection because it is not happy if it gets down below freezing. So uh, right. yeah. We've had it since 1983. That's fine. Yeah. It, it was from his my husband's father, and it's sentimental, so we want sure. to try to keep it alive. Right. Um, but you do think that it would... Um, what do we what do we do about watering? It's already pretty root bound. Um, Just uh, like always, I always tell people there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So when you water it, really flood it, but let the soil dry out an inch deep on the top of the pot before you water it again. Yeah, and it's, it, even though it has very few leaves right now, it will not be drying out as quickly. But there's no way to predict exactly how fast it will dry out. That's why I always say you know feel the soil. Don't rely on these stupid things they call moisture meters that don't work. Your index finger is the best moisture meter in the world. And uh, just judge and water again thoroughly. A little has to grow, a little uh, liquid espoma, a little liquid from Fox Farms, any of the good liquid organic fertilizers yeah, will help yeah. it a great deal. Now, when you want to start another one and it's getting a little late uh, in the year, it, it's possible uh, to just take a cutting off and root it in perlite, but it's not, you know, a guaranteed thing. So since this plant does have such sentiment of value, what I would do uh, late next spring, early summer is uh, create an air layer. Do you know how to, well, we do air layers? Yes. Uh-huh. 
where you, you know, uh, take a little bark off the side, put the sphagnum moss around it. Um, and in effect, you're creating a pre-rooted cutting that way. Uh, and this is going to work just fine. This would be a great thing to do, you know, maybe a foot down from the top of the plant. But as hot as it is now, we know it's going to cool off pretty quickly. And the air layers always form best when they have an extended period of warmth. So I'm probably going to wait and do it late next spring. But your plant's going to be full, going to be very happy by then. Uh, you can take your air layer, you can create a new plant from the top, and this will force the big plant to branch out even more from the base. And if you if you do the air layer, do you go down to where the bark is kind of gray, or do you do it on the greener new growth? I would put your air layer about six inches down from wherever the lowest leaf is. And uh, don't worry about whether the bark is uh, that tanner, a little bit rougher bark, or whether it's still the green bark. That doesn't really matter. But uh, I'm going to move down about six inches from where the foliage is and do my air layer at that point. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, do you have time for another yes. question? Or? Yes. I think um, everybody's sleeping in a little bit this morning, so <laughs> I'm happy to. Yeah. Lucky people. Um, we have um, some crepe myrtles out on our driveway a long ways from the house. And they have been attacked by some kind of uh, insect. We found earlier some little white brown dots looked like almost like um, oh what do you call them anyway on all the leaves and then uh-huh. the black mold right and then we also have some flying tiny teeny tiny flying bugs mm-hmm. it almost defoliated the plants my husband has sprayed them with insecticidal soap mm-hmm. bad um, and they. They're defoliated almost, and they're put on a few more leaves, but those bugs are still there. Is there something else we can do? It's They're 25, one of them is 25 feet tall, the other about 15. They're big trees. Well, the the bugs are almost certainly aphids, and yeah, aphids. they are very common when crepe myrtles are stressed. And the most common cause of stress in crepe myrtles is having that trunk buried. Um, I, yeah, we try to, every year we go because they are where they get a little flood, but... Yep. I, think, I think that part is okay. Okay, well, you should see, I mean, crepe myrtle should have a beautiful, broad root flare. Something is stressing those plants, or they wouldn't be getting the aphids. Now, again, this is not life-threatening. The black mold grows on that sugary excrement. The aphids leave behind your little flying bees and things. They're going after that same sugary poop, as it were. So um, the only other thing that really stresses crepe myrtles badly is drought. And, of course, the past uh, 8, 10 weeks have been not good weather from a crepe myrtle's point of view. And it's, uh, you know, you almost have to water them by hand or with a drip system or I don't like soaker hoses, but a lot of people still use them. But you really need to be watering them very, very deeply, not just... uh, you know, letting a sprinkler run for an hour, that's that's not nearly enough for a 35-foot crepe myrtle. That hose needs to be turned on and run for several hours. If you will reduce, relieve the stress that the plants are under, the aphids will go away on their own. Now, if you do any more spraying, when you use up the soap that you have, get something called spinosad soap. It's a combination of spinosad and insecticidal soap, and that stuff is just... Uh, almost miraculous in what it does to take care of virtually every insect out there. But uh, your crepe myrtles are suffering from summer stress more than anything else. So 
Uh, let's get rid of the aphids. Uh, they'll probably put on a little more foliage this fall, and then, of course, it all drops off for the winter months. But uh, um, it's just they're, they're obviously stressed. They wouldn't have the aphids. Work at fertilizing it, mulching it, being sure that root flare is exposed, thorough deep watering, and when they come out next spring, you'll never know they had a problem, and hopefully they'll stay unstressed throughout the year, and you won't be looking at get this again late next summer. Okay, so we've had a problem this summer, that's for sure. Everybody All has. Right, well, yes. Um, well, that's it, and I thank you for your expertise. Always a pleasure, Sherry. It's a problem. I've seen most of these problems many times over the years, and uh, my uh, experience uh, starting in my grandfather's greenhouse is when I was five years old. So uh, not many problems I haven't seen and dealt with. And yours is a very common one, but crepe myrtles will survive. And like I say, do get out, and, and you should see a real visible broadening at the base of those crepe myrtles. And I've seen people have to go down a foot or 18 inches to reach that point, but it is important that you do. So uh, get out there and check that as well. Okay, will do. Thank you. Thank we'll talk you. again. Bye. Bye. Ah, good morning, Tyler. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. Good name. That's where I was born, so uh, I can remember that name real easily. I'm <laughs> <laughs> good to hear out, and then you'll remember next time. Yeah. All right, I got a question for you. I just uh, I live in the area next to New Braunfels and Marion, and it man out here the cl- it's thick clay soil. Yeah. You know wherever we go. Um, I just got into a new house. It's a new housing development. Uh, the whole area is new. Uh, it's about a year old. And uh, they planted two red uh, red oaks in the front. Okay. Um, they seem to be doing really good. They've gotten some good growth on them so far. They're about, uh, I think they're, they were like, they're like 10 months old or 10 months planted in okay. the ground. How tall are they? Um, I'd say about 14, 15 feet maybe. Okay, so they're probably planted from 15-gallon containers. All right, sir. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and I planted myself a peach tree in the backyard, and I have a Chateau maple in the backyard as well that I planted myself about maybe uh, like right in between spring and summer. I probably planted them. Okay. Um, I'm I'm watering them all about once a week. Um, I got you know each of them has those bags around them, like those right. 25 gallon green bags. Right. Filling those guys up about once a week. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering if I'm not doing enough because of this heat and uh i'm just you know wondering your your advice about Uh, about watering essentially and just taking care of them in this heat maybe even getting into uh the fall and winter what we can do uh, well it's those those are great questions um first of all i don't think your gator bags is the most common brand of those uh, bags around the tree Filling those once is not enough to really water that tree thoroughly. You probably need to fill them three times. Um, okay. And so, and but you don't want to keep, especially the red oaks. You don't want to keep them constantly wet. So, I'm, you know, spring and fall, the bags are maybe a good thing. But when we're, you know, 102 degrees with some breeze. Uh, I'd be just laying that hose at the base of the tree and letting it run until. You know, that ground is thoroughly saturated. You've got plenty of soil. You're on old agricultural land. It is uh, a hard black clay, and when it gets dry, it'll be as hard as adobe. I mean, it'll be like like Mm -hmm. concrete. Uh, You're going to improve that over time by staying organic. You can soften that soil. Uh, Organic fertilizers help. Things like uh, molasses, things like Medina Plus. 
five years from now, you're going to be you're going to be the envy of all your friends that live in North San Antonio. They're sitting on pure limestone and can't even oh, dig I a hole. It. But right now, it's you know I I have some of the same you know where I live northwest and uh, you remember the old cartoons where you know one character it hit another and you'd see that vibration go up his arm until his whole body was shaking. That's the way I sometimes feel when I'm out there working with the digging bar, but that will change as you improve the soil. The main thing I want you to check on those, well, really on all the trees, but especially the red oaks, is to be sure that that root flare is exposed, that uh, where the where the major roots start branching out from the bottom of the tree, that needs to be fully exposed to air, and probably 90% or greater of the trees planted get buried too deeply, especially if the builder does the planting. And um, if you had professionals do the root flare exposure, they would use something called an air spade. It's kind of like a sandblaster without any sand that literally just blasts the dirt away from it. You can do the same thing doing it carefully with just a, a shovel, a uh, you know, some sort of little hand tool, the hoof picks you use if you have ever uh, cleaned a horse's foot or the hay hooks that we use for dragging hay around. Those things are things you can use to kind of loosen the soil and pull it away. But um, your Shantung maple, your peach are the same way, but they're not quite as critical as these red oaks are as far as keeping that root flare exposed. Now, yeah. uh, the what I always tell people, there's no such thing as too much water, but there's too often. So when you water, all those trees water them really, really thoroughly. Now, your red oaks, probably weekly, is going to be adequate. Uh, your more recently planted peaches and your shangtung maple, I think it's going to be like more like twice a week to uh, get them through this period while they're trying to get some roots spread out. Um, as you plant more trees, do increase the diversity in your landscape. Uh, I mean, a builder should be shocked. You should never plant two of the same tree when you're only planting two trees. Uh, they should have planted no, the second tree. It. Yeah, it should have yeah, been a cedar yeah, elm or Mexican. Yeah, but um, yeah. It's, it is it is what it is. Congratulations on your new home, and you're just going to make things better over time. But I, I would probably um, increase the duration of the watering that you're doing and like I say, spring and fall, those uh, bags around the tree are kind of a nice, convenient way to get some water down in the soil. But uh, when it's, a, you know, 100 plus degrees, that's just not enough water to get down deeply so that you're really thoroughly soaking the root ball of the tree. I think the most, the biggest problem I have is the soil is so compacted here yeah. because, of, you know, all the heavy machinery that was just recently on it with building everything that it's just, it takes forever for that soil to absorb all that water. Right. And then you add the additional heavy clay onto it. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, a lot of it just runs off you know, well, down, down the hill or whatever. And this means water real slowly. It may mean putting some mulch around to help hold that moisture, you know, so that it does soak in better. If you are able, and if you get in the habit, like once a month, uh, treat that soil, spray it down. Uh, cheapest thing as far as molasses go is get liquid molasses, about two tablespoons per gallon. Um, dry molasses is a little bit more expensive, but there's no mixing, no mess, just sprinkling around because... Molasses increases the microbial activity, which is what is going to work to soften that soil. I think the so-called aerifiers are a waste of time, but uh, compost, especially on your grassy areas, 
uh, living mulch, which means mulch with some compost in it. The microbial activity you're bringing in is going to soften that soil better than anything you could do physically. And you'd be amazed how quickly it happens. But uh, okay. that, uh, those are things that are, that are really going to help in the long term. All right, cool. Um, I'm trying to think. One other question. I have a Chinese parasol tree that I just picked up the other day. Okay. And um, I was planning on, um, you know, planting. I still have a, uh, um, a crepe myrtle, and they're both still in the pots. And huh? I thought, is it too hot right now to plant trees? No, I don't no. want to. They're already going to get shocked with, you know, transplanting them. I don't want it to, you know, I, I know I'm going to have to babysit them, I'm sure. The well, you're going to have to water them. But the soil in those black plastic nursery cans is 20 degrees hotter than your soil okay. in the ground is. So those trees would love you to get them out of those hot pots and into the ground as quickly as you okay. can. Now, be aware that even in the containers, those trees may be buried too deeply, so this is your great opportunity to wash the soil back away until you find that root flare, and that should be right at, yeah, or above ground level. I definitely did that with one of the red oaks in the front. They Good. did uh, build their, they did uh, bury it too deep, probably about like five, six inches yeah. um, until that root flare was exposed. It is a little bit lower now than ground level. Yeah, you know, that's so going to make it easier to water. That's no big deal. Okay. All right, cool. I just want to make sure that, you know, I don't want to get, like, root rot if it's, you know, too much water. It's just in a puddle. Remember, there's never such thing as too much. There's too often, but there's no such thing as too much. And do be aware that red oaks are very susceptible to oak wilt. So every pruning wound you ever make on that tree, whether it's the size of a pencil or, you know, the size of your arm, be sure that you have sealed that wound after the cut's made. Will do. Thanks for the advice. And thanks for everything. I appreciate your show. Always a pleasure. Call me anytime I can help. Have a good one. You too, Tyler. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's get back to gardening. It's going to be uh, Roy and John and Dustin. And Roy's up first. Good morning, Roy. Good morning, sir. Morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, I've been reading up on uh, on planting corn. Yes, sir. Mainly just for show and uh, conversation piece with my neighbors. Uh, (laughs) I want to ask you, uh, what must do I do, do I start planting and where do I buy my the corn oils from a feed store? Um, any gosh, any nursery, any feed store. Are we talking planting an acre of corn or planting no, a no, few no, rows? No, 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 may, may, uh, just uh, maybe fifteen stalks. That's all. Okay. I, I live on Bendera, uh, off of Bendera Road. Yeah. And uh, I, there's a lot of traffic coming down from Bernie. Yeah. And uh, uh, last year I had a lot of people stop by. <laughs> <laughs> and they were admiring, admiring my, my, my flowers that I plant. So it's just for mainly for show. Oh, yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah, you want to plant as soon as we're past the danger of freezing weather. I usually plant corn sometime around March 15th. And okay. you can start a little earlier if you want. And, you know, package of seed costs you a couple of bucks if it freezes. It's not exactly like you've just, uh, you know, lost your life savings. You can always go plant some more. But here's here's the most important thing about corn, about planting corn. Of course, it needs to be in the sun. That goes without saying. But don't ever plant one real long row of corn. If you wanted a 20-foot row of corn, what you would do is plant four rows side by side that reach five feet long. And here's the reason. Corn is strictly wind-pollinated. Every little kernel of corn on that ear, you have to have a pollen grain come from that tassel up on top. It falls down on that silk that comes out of the end of the uh, developing yeah. ear of corn. And if you just have one row, you just don't have that pollen getting where it needs to. But where you have... 
two or three or four rows side by side, that pollen is getting really concentrated, and you'll get a lot better ears of corn. Um, okay. And so, but I mean, you know, plant two 20-foot rows, plant plant three 20-foot rows, but if you're going to plant a limited number, just be sure you have several rows side by side so you get good pollination. Um, okay. Other than that, I can almost promise you that even in the city, when that corn starts getting ripe, you're going to have the neighborhood possums and raccoons and everything else are going to want to fight you for your corn. I, you know, where I live in the country, I I think they've got, I think they invented the internet a long time ago because they call when my corn starts to get ripe, they put out a message to every raccoon in Kendall County and they all show up <laughs> to try to eat it all in one night. But you can worry about that later. <laughs> but in the meantime, yeah. Plenty of fertilizer, too, and uh, you'll do extremely well with your corn, Roy. You'll have fertilizer. Yeah. Okay. And if you want to have some fun, you could even plant some popcorn. Popcorn looks just like regular corn, grows just like regular corn, and uh, uh, you could invite all those people to come over and uh, pop some corn with you sometime. You you know the uh, corn that they've been selling that here that should be like four for a dollar? That wouldn't do? I wouldn't plant that. In fact... Technically, nobody's going to bug you over it, but it's actually illegal because of some stuff Monsanto's done with seed genetics. Uh, you'd do much better to spend two bucks at a nursery and just get a package. Okay. Okay. Package okay. probably has a hundred seed in it, oh, yes. so one package is going to be okay. plenty for you. Soak it for maybe thirty minutes in water before you plant it, and it'll be up in about three days. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Roy. Thank you for the call Thank this you, morning. Sir. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next up is going to be John. Good morning, John. Hello, John. Hello. Good morning. Uh, actually, this is Jim. Jim, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you heard that click. You know who I was talking to. I'll yeah. <laughs> write it down here. My screen says John, but I'll make it Jim. How can I help today? Okay. Uh, we built us a house out in Bolverde. Congratulations. Uh, this past year. Uh-huh. And uh, we had to go with an aerobic septic system because of county ordinances. Right. Uh, which means I had to have electricity. Yep. <laughs> Anyhow, I, maybe because of the weather, it was so rainy last fall and early spring. When he covered it up, uh, he used a material, I don't know what it is, it's it's coarser than sand and uh, finer than pea gravel. But okay. Anyhow, so I've got this bald spot, and now due to the lay of the land and the slope and uh, the placement of the house, it has to be in the front yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm sitting on my front porch looking at this thing. Uh, what I was wondering, I've I've measured it, and that's the uh, fill is about four four and a half inches above the deck on okay. that concrete. Yeah, is that enough? If I were to replace it with good soil, is that enough to support grass? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're fine. What you're going to find, um, aerobic systems are a pain in the butt, but um, because you have to, they have to be inspected, and then you have to dump a bunch of chlorine in them periodically to keep them functioning to be sure that water that gets sprayed around doesn't have anything yeah. unfortunate in it. And the chlorine is going to be a bit limiting if you just planted plant grass you'll be just fine there but if uh 
Um, that water is not the best for flowers or vegetables or things like that. But, yeah, yeah if you can get three, four inches of soil, even berm it up a little bit if you like, you could plant a tolerant plant like a crepe myrtle or something like that and, uh, you know, just burn, burn it up, make a pretty flower bed out of it. Uh, yeah. Oh, I was afraid that wouldn't be enough soil. Oh, no. Okay. No, uh, lots of us of live where we have... That would be more soil than any place else on this lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. You're exactly right about that. But, no, I'd actually berm it up. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't make it look accidental. I wouldn't make it look like, oh, hey, Jim didn't level his yard properly. Uh, I would probably berm it up even a little bit more than that, and you can either plant grass or, like I say, you could plant a couple of good, hardy plants like... You know, a dwarf crepe myrtle is going to grow about six feet tall and bloom all summer. Maybe some Asiatic jasmine around the base of it. You can make this a nice landscape feature if you want. Or if you just want grass, that's fine, too. But, yeah, three, four inches of soil, yeah. you'll, grow, you'll grow just fine because, you know, it's going to get watered whether you want to water it or not because of the way your septum system works. And, well, the spray uh, heads are, are far away. They're, they're not next to it. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I had thought about, you know, around the perimeter, planting different shrubs to hide it, but it would be like a square. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would look. I uh, It would depend on how you do the rest of your landscape. That's probably not what I would do. Like I said, if I were going to do it, I'd probably make it look more like an, kind of an island area out there, maybe one or two crepe myrtles, maybe a couple of lower evergreen things and ground cover around it. But um I, you can go to that extent, or you can just uh, you can just do grass, whatever whatever will please yeah. you. And, and should would it be beneficial to add uh, lava sand to uh, whatever soil I bring in? Oh, always helps. Yeah, lava sand is a yeah. great soil amendment. Helps with uh, moisture retention and uh, serves uh, to help hold nutrients in place. It's what we call cation exchange, and lava sand is yeah. a great thing to add. Yeah. Okay. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, we're coming into the best time of year to be planting a little more grass when it cools off, so uh, be ready for it. All right, sir. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. Back to the phone lines. Dustin is first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have uh, a property just south of your store on Post Avenue off of Broadway near the Duseum. Yeah. It's pretty much black dirt. I want to plant uh, a new lawn. It's okay. all just weeds and dirt right now. Um, it, gets, it has tall trees on both the east and the west side. It's southern facing. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the day, straight sun. Of course, in the end of the morning, it's a whole lot of shade. And I want something that would be very durable, you know, somewhat drought tolerant, even though I do plan on putting a drip system in underneath the turf okay. before I plant it. And uh, I just figured I'd get some recommendations from you on the best. looks pretty. I can tolerate some foot traffic, and pretty easy to maintain. Well, it's hard to beat St. Augustine. Um, if yeah. there's any shade at all, uh, your Bermuda's going to be thin. Your zoysia's going to thin out on you. I know they sell zoysia, telling you it'll grow in the shade. It'll never be pretty in the shade. So the to me, the only grass to really consider in this case is going to be St. Augustine. Now, I applaud you for doing the drip system. I would encourage you don't overdo it. No yard needs to be grass from just fence to fence. I would do. I think every yard should have some grass in it. But uh, if the if it's primarily sunny, 
Uh, you would want to look at the variety they call Floratam, F-L-O-R-A-T-A-M. Um, if it, uh, you know, is, is a little shadier, there are two varieties I like. One of them is called Palmetto. Uh, the other is called Delmar, D-E-L-M-A-R. Uh, those, they call them a semi-dwarf St. Augustine. You don't have to mow them quite as often, but they're still quite tolerant of foot traffic. They have the longest green season of any grass. You'll never have chiggers in them like you will in uh, Zoysia or Bermuda. So um, that's probably going to be my choice. Again, I would just encourage you, don't overdo it with the amount of grass you plant. I mean, the days of just planting fence-to-fence lawn, they may still do that in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Oregon, where I was a week ago, where they've got unlimited water, but it just doesn't work here Mm -hmm. in South Texas. I hear you. And then is there a preference between the Palmetto or Delmar for the shady? Um, whichever one you can find, in all honesty. Okay. Uh, they're both, uh, you and probably I couldn't tell the difference in looking at the two of them, but uh, uh, they're very, very similar in their growth habit, and I think both of them would be an excellent grass for you. Okay, I appreciate the advice. And remember, you will put it in from sod. St. Augustine does not come as seed. I'll tell you, one of the best local sources normally, call uh, uh, Bill Thomas out at Thomas Stone Landscape. Um, They're Adam Balverde. They have a material yard at Redland Road at 1604. But ask him what's going to be most available for you and what the nicest grass he's finding is. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure, Dustin. Thank you for the call this morning. Bye. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, Angie is up next, and it'll be Betty and Madeline. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, my garden guru. <laughs> How? What <laughs> service may I provide for you this morning? <laughs> my faithful I, follower. <laughs> yes. I have a beautiful pot of periwinkle and salvia, and it's just doing marvelously. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if I can survive that through the winter and transplant it in the ground um periwinkle no um what kind of salvia do you have in that pot it's the one it's the red okay you know the name the red and the purple okay those are all annual plants if you were going to try to save them through the winter months you would have to protect them from freezing weather uh, neither one of them, well, neither one of them is really happy, even when it gets real cool. Uh, okay. good, good news is um, they're not that expensive, especially if you start fairly early in the year with small plants. But uh, um, it's, it's just you you could struggle through the winter with them, but it's going to cost you more to try to protect them all winter than it is to buy some new four-inch plants next spring. Okay, that's good to know and real quick my fig trees have got those rusty they're I, they seem to grow leaves and then they die and then they get new leaves and then they die i don't know what i'm doing they need more water it okay. is just impossible to give a fig too much water they have a very shallow root system they would love it if you would keep a couple of inches of mulch over that root system and yes. it, it's it's impossible to overwater a fig and uh when they dry out at all, the leaves start turning yellow and falling off. And then, like you so accurately described, more <laughs> leaves come out, then they fall off. But if you'll maintain a more even moisture level, um, that won't happen. The only disadvantage is that, that fig tree will try to grow as big as your house is. So oh, that'd be a 
Okay. Okay. Tell me it's out in this town, a good place. And then there's ants on them. Is there a problem there? Uh, they're a nuisance. Uh, they're probably okay. fire ants. Put out a little come and get it bait, and that'll take care of them, and you won't be fighting the ants for your figs. All right. Well, I appreciate all your help. It's always my pleasure. Out there before it's 100 degrees. <laughs> you Thank get out you. and enjoy. We'll talk again, Angie. Uh-huh. Thank you uh-huh. so Bye-bye. much. Goodbye. Bye. So uh, let's just get to it. Uh, good morning, Betty. Oh, good morning to you. <laughs> I'm hoping you can solve my problem. I'll do my very best. Boring. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I happen to get my poinsettia, poinsettia through now okay. it's in a beautiful bush i put it in a pot put it on the north side of my house and i thought i was watering it enough mm-hmm. but now it seems to be dropping its leaves i, I tried to press some stems above it and it's hollow yep. and it's nothing in there that's normal so what is wrong with my plant it probably has gotten too dry, but the, the stems on a poinsettia are always hollow. Uh, healthiest, best plant in the world is going to have a just kind of a cavity right down the middle of it. That's not abnormal at all. Oh, okay. Uh, your pot does have a hole in the bottom, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Okay. It would be hard to water that poinsettia too frequently. I'm going to tell you, feel the soil, but it's probably going to need water every day. Um, you know, and if it is a big plant in a small pot, it might need to be watered twice a day. So I think your issue is just, you've let it get a little dry. Um, I would, you know, be feeding it regularly, uh, with any good liquid organic fertilizer. It will put on, it's got lots of time. I mean, your, your commercial growers, their poinsettias are about two inches tall now, and you know how beautiful they'll be by Christmas time. So, um, that plant has a lot of time to grow and fill out and get ready to give you those uh, glorious, um, well, they're not really flowers, but the, the red bracts uh, or pink or white, whatever color. But uh, hollow stems, uh, uh, that's simply the way the poinsettias, um, that, that's their anatomical structure. Nothing at all wrong with that. Well, my next question is, should I prune it back and, and you know, cut off those hollow limbs that are no longer Well, um, you can prune it back, but I don't ever want you to prune it so much that you take all the foliage off because that plant needs to have some leaves, you know, to keep on photosynthesis going, to keep on making the sugars it needs to stay alive. So we never prune anything to the point that we've taken all the foliage off of it. Now, if you can prune it back, uh, moderately and still have some leaves on the plant, it will be much, it will branch. It'll be much fuller and thicker. It'll be much prettier come the holiday season. But uh, typically when they start dropping leaves, they drop all the bottom leaves first. And then if you cut the top off, you have no leaves at all. And we, we can't do that. We have to always try to save at least a third of the leaves on the plant when we do our pruning. Okay, that makes sense. My next question is, now should I put it back where I had it before. I'm I'm trying to ask the plant to forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if the plant was doing well there, I don't think the problem was light. I think the problem was water. So if oh. the plant had been doing well there since, you know, yeah. the last holiday season, I would put it back in that same spot. Now, remember the thing that makes a poinsettia turn color as we get toward the holiday season 
is having short nights and long days. That plant has a chemical method of measuring how many hours of sunlight it gets, and so it needs to be in a place that doesn't get any artificial light at night. Otherwise, it'll stay a green plant year-round. So it needs to be somewhere, if it's outside, it can't be sitting right under a porch light. If it's inside in a sunny window, it has to be in a room where you don't turn the lights on in the evening because that'll really foul up the flowering cycle and you nobody wants a green poinsettia at Christmas. So uh, remember that when we get into, by middle October, it needs for sure to be in an area where it gets that normal long night, short day cycle every day so that it'll color up and be, be beautiful for you for the holidays. Okay, well, here's hoping it'll get there. <laughs> I think it'll get there, but uh, okay. don't worry about hollow stems. That's that's okay. normal for a poinsettia. That's nothing well, you've done or failed to do, but do watch your watering. Do be feeding every two, three weeks oh, with uh, good. good liquid fertilizer, Hestro or something like that, and you'll be in good shape. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your help and your enthusiasm. <laughs> I uh, Like I said, I started growing poinsettias a long time ago with my grandfather. Oh, okay. and all the beautiful new varieties. They're, uh, it's, it's a happy plant at a happy time of year. So let's try okay. to make your plant a little happier. Okay. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome, Betty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Madeline's next. Good morning, Madeline. Good morning. Good morning. I have a living pine tree in my in front of my house. Okay. Now I'm wondering, you know how the pines drop all around? Yep. Is it all right for me to remove them, or should I wait till the winter? Um, I'm there mostly all summer because it's been so hot. But I've been watering the tree about once a month. Um, if your tree looks good, you're doing fine. Uh, if it's a big established tree, once a month is enough. Um, it's it, that little bit of uh, pruning. You can do whatever you want to. It'd be easier on you to wait till it cools off a little bit, but the tree doesn't really care. Uh huh. Okay, that's good. Okay. Do you know what kind of pine it is? Oh, I know it's a living pine, and it has uh, pine cones on it too. Some of the pine cones drops down and so forth. That sounds and like the uh, uh, the pines. Uh, you know they're. Thin, but but they, they just fall all over the place. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's one of the problems. But you know, you can turn them into decorations and things like that. But no, it's if you want to knock them off early, you can. But uh, uh, you just don't. You keep at least one foot on the ground. And if somebody's going to be climbing a tree, I don't want it to be you. <laughs> no, I won't climb it. No, no. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I was thing. I said, need to move those. Blow those things away, you know. Yeah. And everything, but I, I'll wait because I've been waiting all this long. I can wait a little longer. I think uh, it'll be easier on you, and certainly easier on the tree. So you call me anytime. I uh, I can help you in any way. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Madeline. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. Let's see. Wayne is next, and then Brian, and then Joyce. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey. My house is seven or nine years old, okay. and the uh, dirt around the foundation has settled. So I went to the closest uh, store and got a bag of something that said soil and put several of them around. And uh, now when I water it, that soil floats. Okay. So it's you know it, it says the bag had like seventy percent pine stuff in it. So. Mm-hmm. When I go to the store, what what do I need to get for good dirt to put around the uh, around the house? Well, 
I would uh, suggest, do you have shrubs and things planted around the house as well? Uh, just some roses in the front that I got down at uh, Shades of Green. Okay. Um, there's, you know, raising the soil level around the foundation is strictly a cosmetic thing. There's nothing that says you do or don't have to do that. I probably would just use a good mulch. Um, you know, it's going to be not going to bring in the weeds that, you know, topsoil or something like that would. And uh, it's going to, you know, help the roots of those roses. So I'd just be looking for a good mulch. Now, if you want a soil, I'd be looking for what they call garden soil, not potting soil, because potting soil tends to have uh, either peat moss, which you don't really care for, or tends to have a lot of woody material in it. Um, you, if you really need to raise it, you can always put down something like some of the garden soil. Then maybe put a little bit of mulch on top of it, which will help keep it from floating away. But, um, uh, the other thing that you can do, of course, the reason you have all that stuff floating out is because the amount of water you're applying at one time, actually the best thing you can do for a foundation is to, uh, get some of that pressure compensated drip tubing and just put one or two lines of that around uh, the foundation of your home. And every couple of weeks, turn those things on, let it run for two or three hours. That will protect your foundation a great deal from that heave and, you know, kind of the expansion and contraction that our soils go through when we go from wet to dry to wet to dry. And if you're using something like the drip tubing, the water comes out so slowly, nothing's going to float. It's all going to be absorbed. So, if this were mine, I'd probably put just one or or two runs of the drip tubing around the perimeter of your foundation, put your mulch, your soil, whatever you choose on top of that, and you'll probably never have to do any of this again. All right. Thank you much, Bob. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for the call this morning. Appreciate it, Wayne. Ah, good morning, Brian. Good morning, Bob. Morning. Bob. I'm working some flower beds in the backyard, some new ones, uh, cleaned out all the grass, but I'm over in Balcones Heights and there's so much clay in the soil. It's, it's just a mess. So I know, um, well now I've gone blank cause I'm talking to you on the radio. <laughs> Molasses. <laughs> Molasses, you know, that'll, you've always said that'll help loosen up the soil. Right. But I wanted to find out, is there anything else that I can amend the soil with that will kind of break up that clay and give me some good soil to dig in? Probably the best thing, well, two things that will really help, one of which is a permanent addition, which is what we call lava sand. Lava sand actually works to hold moisture in the soil. It softens the soil. I mean, if you know, if you've been to Hawaii, you see how beautiful things grow in that in the just basically pure lava. And we actually get a lot of uh, plants shipped to us that are growing in pure lava. So adding some lava sand is a great thing to do. The other thing that will soften your soil just overnight is adding compost. And of course, uh, your grass and things adding a when it cools off a little bit, putting a layer of that on top of the grass will soften the soil underneath. Your flower beds, putting an inch or two down as a mulch. Um, I'll tell you, you know, my personal story from a number of years ago, I knew I was going to be planting some fruit trees in January. It's July. My soil is as hard as a rock. 
Everywhere I was going to plant a tree, I dumped about half a wheelbarrow full of compost, and I did nothing else. I, As I recall, it was fairly dry, but I didn't add water. I didn't add anything. When January got there, that soil was so soft and full of earthworms that I could have dug it up with a spoon. So um, compost is something that you will add, that you will re, you know add more periodically, but uh, I've gotten to where in my vegetable garden, every time I get ready to plant a row, if I haven't already done so, I'll take a full 50-pound bag of lava sand and just spread it down the row, and it's amazing how much softer that keeps the soil. Okay. Very good. Um, I'll get to work on that before it gets too hot this afternoon. Well, it'd be a good uh, thing. And and the thing about, you know, about compost, of course, is bringing in all that uh, microbial activity, the combination of compost and molasses is simply the best thing you can do to improve the quality of your stro- of your soil. But as far as physical structure, lava sand gets my vote. Okay. Hey, while well, I had you on the phone, I wanted to let you know I tried making some cuttings out of some um, sweet 100s. Yeah. And you were right. They just... They just took off in that perlite. <laughs> yeah. There's no time at all. It was so hot outside that I didn't put any, I didn't want to have them outside because it was so hot. Mm-hmm. But I found me some LED lights that were about 6,500 Kelvin. Yeah. And they just, they just love it under that light. So <laughs> when it starts cooling off a little more, I'm going to get them outside and Hopefully, get a few tomatoes off. Ah, uh, you get a you get a lot of tomatoes off of them, and uh, just hopefully we won't have a freeze too early. I'd like to hope you'll be eating fresh, uh, fresh sweet one hundreds uh, Christmas Day. Sounds good to me, Brian. I appreciate the call. You keep up the good work. Same here. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Sir, certainly. <laughs> Bye. All right, uh, Joyce is next. Governor Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. How are you this fine day? Oh, I'm very well, and. I enjoyed my visit so much out at Shades of Green. Well, we were so glad kinds, to see you. All kinds of nice things, and I uh, thought I had all the... Now I have just questions and questions about more. <laughs> okay. And that is, I bought uh, in your in your succulent house out there a Japonica berryandieri. I mean, a lot of balls. And Do you know what I'm talking about? It looks like a little round ball. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually euphorbia. Um, it, it has that round ball at the base and then it puts a kind of a succulent top up and has an orangey red spike of flowers periodically. This is starting, it has its little flowers and it's doing well. And my question about it is, uh, I'm assuming since it was back there that this is a, uh, uh, a cold sensitive plant. Correct. And I'm wondering how much or what and what because it's in a very fluffy soil. So mm-hmm. what the watering and will it take any direct or does it want any direct sun? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. It wants uh it wants a pretty fair amount of sun. Uh, it is a North African plant, which means it's used to having a dry season. That's why it uh, evolutionarily has developed that big bulb to hold some water through its what would be dry season. Now you don't have to you know, give it a season of drought, but you need to let it dry, oh, to the point that it's dry probably an inch deep in the pot between waterings, but it wants a good bright window. It wants to come in when the temperatures start getting down in the 50s. Doesn't want to go all the way to freezing at all. Oh, all right. 
like 50-ish. Well, yeah. I wondered that when I said sensitive, whether it was going to be like 65 or whether it could stay out as long as it was uh, above 45, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 45, 50. It's not as cold sensitive as something like the Desert Rose, but uh, it uh, definitely definitely will need some protection. And like I say, I'd, I'd aim at 45, 50, having it inside by then. Okay. And I was wondering, since you're talking to Howard today, he had a couple of weeks ago mentioned a plant that he saw and didn't know what it was that the, the individual was calling a Buddha belly. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if this might not, and you suggested that that might be a dystropha of some yeah. sort, whether this, because of that little round gray, you know, that's a fanciful name for a lot of things, <laughs> I guess. But he said he was interested in the plant and was going to find out what it was, if that might be the same, or if not, what he was calling it, because he seemed to like the plant. Yeah. Well, I will do my best to uh, remember to. Think about it or have time. Yeah. Ask him. It's uh, it, you know, it's the genus is Jatropa, uh, of course, and uh, it's it's just such an interesting thing. Plants, of course, are classified according to what their flowers look like, not what their structure is. And uh, there are other Jatropas that are woody shrubs, small trees. Uh, uh, this is just one of the more unusual ones, and. Uh, Quite honestly, I, if there are any left, I may need to take one home. It'd probably be been ten years since I'd seen that plant available commercially. So I'm I'm glad you got one because you like the unusual, and they should be really really easy for you to grow. Okay, very good. Now the next one I wanted to ask you about was one I think that was slightly mentioned on your show. Didn't think about it until I was cruising around the the nursery and saw this what I thought was a really cute little plant called a velvet leaf senna. Mm-hmm. And it says three feet, perennial, blooms yellow, mine's already blooming, it's about eight inches tall. I'm assuming this is, what, a little shrub? Uh, and I just wondered if you could tell me what it's going to mature as. There are a lot of different sennas. If you look them up, botanically, the genus is Cassia, C-A-S-S-I-A. The velvet leaf is one of the lower-growing ones. The corymbosa is the bigger one. In fact, if you were to drive down through uh, Monta Vista areas like that, you see these shrubs that are just covered with yellow flowers, and that's what you're looking at. The velvet leaf is a little bit smaller form. We have a uh, uh, a native one in the hill country. It's called two-leaf center. That's one of our prettiest uh, uh, spring and summer wildflowers up there. But yours is going to make a, like I say, a shrubby plant three, four feet tall, in a really cold winter, it may freeze down, but they usually come right back out. Um, after they bloom, they will have a uh, you know, seed pod, uh, and you can plant and start more of them from seed if you like. It's certainly, uh, uh, certainly an easy plant to grow. If you remember the old plant they call the Empress Candlestick that gets about six yes. or seven feet tall, yes. that is, that's still another cassia. Now, that one's not usually perennial, but this little uh, velvet leaf senna should be totally perennial unless we get temperatures down in the single digits. Well, this one's only about, what, 10 inches tall and blooming. So uh, does it bloom? Does it have a, a continuous bloom season through what? Pretty much uh, warm weather. It actually usually is midsummer before it starts blooming, but then it just uh, blooms and blooms and blooms. Oh, well, it is a pretty little thing. I'm really happy with that one, too. And I did. W- I wanted to ask one last question, and that was those cute little frizzle sizzles. <laughs> you just can't resist those things. Is that thing kin to a ponytail with that little bulby thing? No, not kin to it at all. 
Um, <laughs> but they are, they're another African plant. They are uh, just, you know, hardy, hardy little things. Uh, they need lots of sun. As long as they get plenty of sun, those leaves stay curly. If they don't get enough sun, the leaves just go totally straight on you. They will bloom periodically, and um, the flower will be almost as big as the plant. And also periodically, they will look like they've totally died. They'll lose every leaf. This probably has something to do with their drought cycle in the area they came from. But as long as that little bulb is hard, just stay patient with it, and six weeks later, it'll be fully leafed out again. But uh, they are truly one of the most unusual little plants I've ever seen. I have a neighbor who is not really a plant person, but she likes succulents, and she's been having some health issues, and I knew she'd never seen that thing uh-huh. before. And I gave her one, so you gave me happiness giving her happiness. <laughs> <laughs> well, be sure she keeps it in a really sunny area, and that one also will need uh, winter protection as well, Joyce. All righty. Bob, thank you so very much. I enjoyed seeing you and visiting the other day. Well, I'll talk to you again soon. And uh, all the animals love you as well and always say, just to give you a, a verbal hug when I don't see you in person because they appreciate <laughs> you so much, Joyce. Extended back to the whole family <laughs> there. I will, I will pass it along. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's get back to gardening and back to the phone line. It's going to be Thomas and Don, John. I'm sorry. Thomas and Don and then J.D. and James. Thomas is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Tangerine uh, Beauty Cross Vine, how close can you plant them uh, together? As close as you want to. Um, I don't think you need to plant them closer than maybe two to three feet apart, but uh, they don't really compete with each other. You could plant them touching if you were looking for instant screen, but my normal spacing would be two to three feet center to center, but you plant them closer if you like. Okay. And uh, this... uh Lava sand that uh, Howard talks about, the cinderite. Right. Where can Are you going to handle that? Or anybody handle that in this area? Or? I don't know yet. We're looking at it, but uh, the freight getting it here, since none of our big distributors, I'm hoping that uh, one of our local distributors will pick it up so they can bring it in by the truckload, which will make the freight reasonable. But um, for us to buy it and bring it in, the freight it cost us more than the cinderite would. So still working on that one. I hope we will. And I don't know of anyone who has it in this area yet, but uh, I'm hoping one of our distributors will pick it up and then we can certainly put it on the shelves. It's great material. It's really, really good material, but um, it's heavy and uh, those truckers don't give their time away. No. Uh-huh. Well, is it uh, the same consistency as the, as the one we, we have here? Or? It's uh, The beauty of it is that you can get different grades of it, so you can get it coarse or fine. As uh, far as, you know, this, this low-level energy that lava contains uh, that we call paramagnetism, uh, it's just one of the ones that has a very high level of paramagnetism, which means it's probably recent lava. It's only a few million years old instead of being 50 million years old. But uh, lava sand is is of benefit to the soil, uh, regardless of whether the paramagnetism is high or low. It's just high makes it even better. Yeah, I, I, uh, I use it quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, Gardenville used to sell it by, you know, bulk. Right. Right. But it's been years ago. I don't know if they still do, but it's uh, 
They used to sell it like that. Well, I'm, and I don't, I talked to uh, uh, my friend uh, Jeff Knight at Stone and Soil Depot the other day. I should have asked him. I'll ask him if they have uh, any way or any thought of bringing it in because uh, they're such good progressive people. And he did tell me, I don't know exactly the timing, but they're actually going to be opening a store out of New Braunfels, which is going to make it even more convenient for a lot of my listeners. But uh, let me let me talk to him and see if they have it in bulk. I know Gardenville has carried a basaltic rock before, which is also a paramagnetic igneous rock, but I uh, have not heard about them carrying much in the way of lava right now. You know, another thing I wonder, Bob, how you have your your uh, parking lot with uh, the K granite. granite. Yeah. Wonder why uh, more people don't use that because that's that's damn asphalt, man. I mean. <laughs> We're surrounded by that stuff, and this heat—you can just—it's like a big cobalt, uh, a big frying pan, you know. And heat, you know, and it just seemed like it—the it, uh, water would run through it, and it'd be better for the water table and everything. Well, it'd be better for everything, Thomas. I think one of the big deals is you can't paint stripes on it, and uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I just—oh man, I was listening to my guys on. Uh, you know, on the outdoor show driving in at 4 o'clock this morning, and they were talking about Houston traffic. And my grandmother used to paraphrase the Bible. She said the uh, automobile is the instrument that separates the quick and the dead. And uh, I just am constantly amazed at the things I see doing behind the wheel of a car. But I, I think that's one of the reasons the city does not encourage it. In fact, some places they really hassle people over making parking lots out of it, even though it makes a very durable surface. But uh, I'm with you. I, I sure wish it was more widely used because environmentally it is much, much friendlier. But uh, I can tell you, you can't paint stripes on it, and some people can't park unless they have stripes to tell them where to park. Shades of Green customers are a little bit smarter than most. <laughs> okay. Okay, Bob. Have a great Labor Day, Thomas. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Bye. All right. Next up is Don. Good morning, Don. Bob, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yes, sir. Good to hear you. Well, I'm out here at uh, Stone and Soil on uh, West Loop 1604. I'm making another bed uh, to put in uh, plants. And uh, I've done it in the past, and I talked to you about the, the type of bushes that I wanted in there for this area uh, for our uh, weather and so forth. And I've got a couple of well, actually, four pittosporums, mm-hmm. and um, they're not liking, I guess, the drought or something, but uh, they've been really good. I've had uh, a couple of them in for five years, and they're like uh, three feet tall, six feet across. They're beautiful, but this year, they started browning up on me, and when I was watering them, man, I, I just had tons of grasshoppers just living in them. Okay? Sure, sure. Well, now it's 80% dead. Okay, so I don't know if it was a grasshopper thing or if I didn't keep up with the watering, but I kind of thought they were indigenous and kind of drought tolerant. What do you think? Well, I've got one outside my back door that's about 15 feet tall and 15 feet wide. I suspect it's been there for 80 or 90 years, and I water it three or four times a year. So once they're established, they should be very drought tolerant. Now, are yours the dwarf pit, or is it the standard one that gets taller? Well, it's, it's the standard ones that I'm having okay. issues with. I put another bed in that has the dwarf, and they're maybe just about going on a year old. And okay. I'm, I'm here at Stone and Soil because I'm building another bed. All okay. Right? And uh, 
I, I love them, man. They're beautiful, but they're not, you know, I'm, I'm concerned because I've got two of them that are, well, one's 80% dead, one's about 50% dead. And you I need you, the grasshoppers just love them. Yeah, you need to check and be sure that they are not buried too deeply. The other thing, um, I mean, once they've been in several years, I, I they should be able to go a month or longer without watering. The one thing that I do see in town uh, periodically is rats or sometimes squirrels will chew on the bark. And if they girdle that limb all the way around, if they chew the bark off all the way around, that can cause uh, parts of the plants to die out. But uh, um, that's, uh, that's about the only thing that I see that ever really causes the green pits a problem. Now, the variegated ones aren't quite as cold-hardy, but um, if if you're watering them thoroughly, if they've been in for several years, if you're watering them thoroughly once a month, that should be enough water. I would check the base, look down at the bottom of the stem, see if you see any evidence that any chewing has been going on on the bark, and check and be sure that that root flare is exposed. Now, um, if a limb totally turns brown, that limb is probably dead, but I have seen them lose a lot of the top for one reason or another and still grow back out and since they've got the root system of a big plant they generally regrow very quickly okay yeah they are completely dead uh, this morning i went out there grabbed the leaves and i mean the twigs just snapped right off they're, they're, it's a it's a goner <laughs> and it's it's been in the ground for three or four years you say i'm going to say the ones that i'm having problems with are about five years old okay and like i say i love them so much i got a couple more in another bed and i wanted to put more in and i'm just uh, well, i'm concerned check the base and see if you see anything looks like it's been chewing on it and be sure that root flare is exposed um mm-hmm. they should be one of the hardiest plants you ever plant so uh yeah. let me know what you find out well thank you bob man keep it up all right I'll do my very best, and you have a good weekend. Thank you, Don. Bye. All right, let's get back to gardening, and we're going to talk to J.D. and then to James. Uh, Good morning, J.D. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I have a a question about uh, cedar apple rust on an Asian pear tree in the hill country. Okay. I have two trees. They're about 15 years old. Uh, we just harvested about two bushels of Asian pears. Mm-hmm. But one tree has what apparently looks like cedar apple rust on it. And I want to know what can I do for it and what's the prognosis, you know, for this tree in the future. Well, all pear trees are susceptible to a number of different blights and rusts and things like that. Um, the best, you know, best cure is just prevention and the the things that they hate are too much pruning, too much water, and synthetic fertilizer. So be absolutely certain that you're staying strictly with organics on them. Uh, be sure that root flare is exposed. That goes for every kind of tree in the world. And, I mean, pruning, we just don't... It's funny when we talk about fruit trees because peaches and plums, you've got to prune them regularly if you're going to get good production, if you can keep your trees healthy. Pear trees should live 100 years, and the less they see of any pruning shears, the better they are going to do. Um, I would do a couple of things. I would probably a couple of times a year put, you know, 10 pounds or so of whole ground cornmeal on the ground around the tree. 
Um, the tree should outgrow the rust problem. It's not nearly as severe as the uh, bacterial uh, fire blight, which is what gets so many of the soft pears. But Asian pears, we don't usually see that much of a problem on. But just, uh, again, be sure the root flare is exposed. Be sure you're watering thoroughly and deeply. But with a pear, if in doubt, keep it on the dry side rather than keeping it too wet. And uh, like I say, just uh, prune only to take out dead wood or if you have a serious issue with, uh, you know, some storm damage or crossing limbs or things like that. But uh, if you just let that tree maintain its own vigor, uh, you'll probably never see the rust problem again on them. Yeah, I I have not pruned it, and uh, I was wondering if I could use uh, cottonseed meal as a fertilizer. You can use it. I am not as crazy. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but they put so many chemicals on cotton these days. And many years ago, uh, the gentleman I worked for at the time, we killed a bunch of roses because uh, we got a bad load of cottonseed meal and uh, had a lot of defoliant left in it. I would tend, I would be more likely to use uh, one of the poultry litter fertilizers, something like Medina makes, or uh, one of the uh, um, alfalfa-based fertilizers like Nature's Creation makes. Nature's Creation makes one they call premium lawn food, would be really great for those pears. Medina's Growing Green would be really great for those pears. Okay, Bob. I really appreciate it. I always uh, get a great amount of information, and I thank you for having this program on for so many years. It's, well, it's a blessing. It's my pleasure, and I get, I feel like, I used to say I got to talk to the nicest people in Texas, but got people calling me from all over the country now, so I'll just say I get to talk to the nicest people out there, so uh, yeah. you call me anytime I can help you, J.D. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. You too. Bye. Alright, uh, let's see what James is up to. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? You know, I think it actually felt a couple of degrees cooler this morning. It may be that I'm hallucinating from the heat of the past few days, but uh, looking at that old calendar and seeing that September's right around the corner, we know fall's going to get here sooner or later. Yes, sir. You better get ready with your uh, broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower transplants. The time's coming, man. I tell you, I'm... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am behind on just about everything, but I'm working at catching up every day. Yeah, it's good news because in this winter garden we got down here, those uh, cold crops last forever, it seems. Oh, I mean, we can, and I, I usually plant, oh, maybe even as many as four different crops. I get that broccoli in early, I'll plant some more you know, late fall, I'll plant some early spring, and then if it looks like it's going to be a cool spring, I'll plant more a little later. I just, there's just nothing much healthier than the coal crops, and uh, they just grow so easily and grow so well. It's a blessing to have a winter that's not uh, as severe as a, a lot of other parts of the country. Well, I still like having, uh, are, do you grow yours in the in the hoop houses, or where where do you grow your coal crops? Not yet. They're they're out in the the garden, but uh, we're building a movable hoop house, and ah. hopefully that'll we'll go into January and maybe even February with broccoli's. Yeah, they every now and then it gets cold enough. I've had cauliflower damage. I can't say I ever see any cold damage on the broccoli. In the years I've grown Brussels sprouts, 
I mean, that those things will go below zero without a problem. But uh, uh, the broccoli, the broccoli rob, the broccolini, all those things are just, it just, it just almost makes my mouth water to think about how delicious they are and how easy they are to grow. I just, uh, um, and I think with this, uh, having this spinosad soap available now, if the little worms do show up or any of the few insects we see on them periodically, man, that stuff works well to control it. Yes, it sure does. Um, I called with a couple of questions. Yes, sir. Uh, the big wee satch is easy to take care of with the steel chainsaw mm-hmm. and uh, a jug of uh, of diesel fuel. Right. But I got a few smaller ones around there. They're about four foot tall and stems on them about as big as your thumb. Uh-huh. If I cut those down low and treat them with diesel, is that gonna work oh yeah do i need to dig them up no no i something that small i'm gonna whack it down with a grubbing hoe and try to get it a little below ground level but you know that the diesel is going to take care of that uh probably quit more quickly than it does on the big ones oh okay well then that's that's the way we'll handle it yeah um the, the weeds that grow up in the middle of the road you know the old road going down there oh yeah um you know, it's hard to get a mower up there because of the rocks and the weed eaters, kind of, that's a lot of work. Um, can I salt that metal uh, with stock salt before we start getting the rains and get a good kill? You know, you can. I just always worry about something that is as water-soluble. One of the things we found up in uh, Oregon a couple of weeks ago, there. They're, they have a new product out. It's coming out of Florida, but it's a combination of vinegar and uh, sea salt. And you might experiment with that because you're an experimenter and, uh, and you do those things. And they are telling me that they have less problem with that salt spreading where you don't want it and that it seems to be an even more effective kill. I don't, uh, they, they didn't really give me the proportions, but... Um, I think I'd probably try a combination of that uh, 20% vinegar with a little bit of salt, and uh, I'll bet you that'll do the job for you. But, um, you know, just don't don't be too close to the rows you're going to be planting. Well, um, y- y- you know, back in the old days, we used to drain oil out of the tractor and the right. truck and just put it down the middle of the road, and that, that worked for a while but now the weeds have come back yeah and i i really you know i'm not real particular about killing that weed patch down the middle with salt because it goes through the drop spreader really easy well i go for it then i you know Uh, i think that'd be fine but but try at least an area of it try some 20 percent vinegar along with it and see if that enhances your kill okay uh that salt isn't going to migrate that far. It's going to pretty much stay in the gravel in the road, right? Um, it dissolves, and anywhere the water goes, it's going to take some of the salt with it, but probably not enough to cause a real problem. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, and it'll go through the drop spreader, and then that that's a real problem with those weeds growing up that... Oh, uh, yeah. But remember, in biblical times, that's how they destroyed civilizations, was plowing salt into the fields because then they couldn't grow crops. So just 
Be judicious in where you put it, and you should be fine on it, James. Well, we have the pleasure of uh, talking with Mr. Howard Garrett. Good morning, sir. Howard, are you there? Yes. Oh, very good. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Sounded completely dead. I thought I got cut off. Uh, everything. Yeah, everything is just uh, still hot and dry down here. I understand y'all have had a little moisture, but um, summer just keeps hanging on down here. Yeah, we had a pretty decent rain uh, about uh, almost a day ago now, and it's still uh, still moist. So plants aren't uh, wilted. They got enough to enjoy it, so that was good. Uh, uh, well, I guess it was actually... The rain actually came yesterday in the middle of the afternoon. I remember now vividly because I washed my car just the day before. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Yeah, that was the timing on it. Well, we've we we've had spotty spotty showers uh, last weekend. Uh, regular caller and friend up in Fredericksburg got like four and a half inches of rain, but two miles away they didn't get anything, and then had another caller. South of San Antonio, they got five and a half inches of rain. But you know, you go a couple of miles down the road, it's just these little showers seem to just stall out and just sit there and dump a ton of moisture on you know one spot. I've had like uh, two tenths of an inch the entire month. Roberta's had four one hundredths the entire month. So uh, we're we're ready for a little moisture, and we're starting to see a lot of stress. I think that subsoil layer has gotten dry enough now that even our trees are starting to show some stress yeah i think so unfortunately florida's about to get hammered and get way more than they uh they would like i hope it uh i hope it goes well for them down there and get a little luck uh going and maybe glances off and comes apart quicker but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen well you know it's just if it weren't such a serious business it would almost be humorous watching these crazy forecasters you know tearing their hair out trying to figure out what it's going to do because they were started out saying that uh, it was going to fizzle out not be anything and then it's you know come to this cat four and first it was going to hit puerto rico and just the uh top of the hour news i probably an hour ago they're saying that now that it may not even may not even make land landfall, may just go up the coast and they'll have to oh, deal really? with storm surges. But I haven't heard that. Well, that they seem great. to change it every five minutes, so you know, who knows? But it's uh uh that gosh, that area of Florida is just so built up that uh anything along that coast has the potential to be hard. And I'm sitting here thinking about uh, you know, when they had what's been two or three years that it got so wet with the hurricanes that it just virtually destroyed the caladium crop because I think about ninety five percent of the caladiums produced come out of central Florida and um they we just you know, we had a, a period there where we just couldn't get caladium bulbs and Texas plants a lot of things and uh visiting with our caladium supplier there's some incredibly beautiful new varieties and i'm just in hopes that all those fields don't get saturated and uh, spoil that crop again well it's interesting i i guess that year i remember what you're talking about now too and you don't see that many caladiums around dallas anymore i think people kind of got out of the the habit of yeah. it to a degree so yeah we need to go back i don't have any planted here and i i used to plant white ones all over the place every year and i may to get some, I'll go out and see if they've got some of the new ones 
and in the stores here, and I'll uh, get some planted. So I've got a, a tip for people, and uh, it's something that's going on in Fort Worth. So anybody listening in uh, my area, but if you want to drive away, this is something worth it. There's a there's an art exhibit at the Kimball that is just the greatest show I've ever seen. It's really? Monet, the uh, late years, and it's 59 of his uh, paintings, and they're primarily, a big percentage of them are the Lily Pond, you know, uh-huh. that at his residence and studio in, in France. But uh, it, it's just incredible. Some of them are normal size. Some of them are really big because he was doing some, he had been commissioned to do a big mural, and he was doing some big pieces that were to be part of that mural. Some of them were never, some of these uh, pieces have never been seen before wow. in an exhibit. And they, it is just spectacular what uh, what he did capturing uh, nature. A lot of people see his stuff and it looks real abstract, but yeah. it's really not. It's really very realistic if you spend some time looking oh, at it. Oh, it's just it varies. It's some of my favorite art. So obviously you've been over to see this exhibition and you'll probably go back again. Well, I might because we ended up joining and that was a tip I was going to get from everybody. <laughs> the lines were incredible. It's been a very popular uh, show. Mm-hmm. And we were standing in line waiting and the, the price of the uh, ticket is is like $18 or something like that. And I noticed there was a little desk over on the, on the uh, other side of the room, and I asked about it, and it was to join uh, a special deal, and you can you, you can get out of the line and walk across the uh, uh, the lobby area and sign up there for membership for two people for seventy. Uh, $5, I think it was, and you can go back as many times as you want. You can give the tickets to friends or relatives to go, and it is wow. absolutely worth uh, the price, and you don't even have to stand in line if you know that little trick. Hey, well, and that goes for a lot of different things, and that's why I encourage people to support uh, things like that. Well, that's, yeah, that is a very good tip. Do you have any idea how long this particular exhibit lasts? Yeah, it's going to end September the 15th unless, you know, it's extended, which wouldn't surprise me a bit. It's been so popular, but the official end date is uh, September the 15th, which, by the way, is the date that I've always in the past, and I've, I've done it to a degree this year, too, told people is the timing to put out corn gluten meal, mm-hmm. the best guess for a pre-emergent. I guess you could you could start it now and go through that uh, time and be in pretty good shape. The people here, the chemical pushers here in the Dallas area, have been recommending the chemical pre-emergent, to- the toxic stuff, now for a month. Wow. And I've, I've been telling people, you know, one, it's toxic. I don't recommend it anyway. But two, you're putting it out way too early. You know, the, Oh, yeah. The uh, cool season grasses like poa annua and bluegrass and uh, you know rescue grass and all that stuff they're not going to germinate until it starts getting a little uh, cool so cool or you know cooler or mo- moving toward uh, <laughs> yeah at least so a lot of people have wasted their money and you know just done a toxic thing another uh, um, the, the thing I was going to tell you is my for any anybody that follows my column either online or actually gets the paper in Dallas Morning News, it's moving again. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's moving to Thursday, and it's going to be on the cover of the uh, comic 
section, which is the <laughs> section it's in now. But isn't that a perfect place for me to be? Well, I think I think some of your uh, chemical competitors might feel that way, but I, I, you know, if there's one that that part of the paper probably gets read more than the front page does. So, oh, it's my favorite for sure. I, I, I words and all that. Yeah, I I suspect that that will get more people seeing your column than anywhere else they can put it in the newsletter. So. Uh, um, I think that's a very good thing now, <laughs> whether there's any relationship between the comics and uh, anything else, I don't know, but uh, that's that's interesting. So it's going to be on Thursday, because I have an yeah, aunt. It'll be next Thursday, and they put, it, they put the announcement of it in the paper this past Wednesday, and didn't even tell me about it. I've learned about it by reading the paper. I tell you, well, I have an aunt up in Dallas that still is a great follower, and anytime she's really impressed with something, she... Uh, she always clips it out and mails it to me, and it's, I just don't mention that people can always get the same information on DirtDoctor.com. But uh, for people that want it in print, that's that's good to know. Well, I, uh, I'm i real interested on the Monet exhibit, too, because that's just a, that's a great thing. I think gardeners are great appreciators of art, and uh, like you say, Monet's, even though it, it's, uh, to me, a very enjoyable abstract, but it's it's very much nature related so much of it and just just good art there's just no two ways about it it's just fantastic and the kimball is worth going to see by itself if you've never seen the kimball museum it's worth just going to see the building it's just fabulous and it's uh uh, the permanent exhibit there is is heavy duty stuff i mean Mm -hmm. really great art and it varies all over the place in fact, there's a funny story. I was telling Judy years ago. I had a client in uh, Wichita, Kansas, a real rich uh, guy. And he was uh, had me come up and uh, work on the landscape design and everything. And they were bringing some new art into the house. And his decorator was talking about the fact that he was buying Renoirs and Monets and I mean really expensive stuff. And he, he looked at me and he said. You know what, Georgia, you know the difference between a Monet and a Monet. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was pretty true. In fact, by the way, there then there is one of the most famous Monets in the uh, in the permanent exhibit there at the uh, Kimball. But anyway, anybody has some time between now and, uh, and September the fifteenth, I would I would highly, highly recommend. You know, and it's it's so funny that uh so many of your of your North Dallas folks look down their nose at Fort Worth, but Fort Worth has some of the best cultural exhibits oh, yeah. and museums uh, anywhere right. around, and it's just a, a real hidden jewel. You can, you know, you you can make a a long day and and a lot more than that visiting everything from the Museum of Western Art. And it's been a long time since I've been to the Botanical Gardens, but they used to be one of the better botanical gardens around as well. Well, it's still good. In fact, Judy and I were going, we were going to make most of the day of it, and we were going to start there and have lunch at the little restaurant there mm-hmm. at the uh, Botanic Gardens, and and we ran into something new. The old entrance was closed. Oh, really? We had to go in the new entrance, you know, that's closer to the Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a big horse show going on there, <laughs> people all over the place, but. The botanic gardens were real crowded, too, and we got on the shuttle. You have to go in the new part and be shuttled over to the old part. Really? Uh, permanently now, apparently, from what she uh, said. And uh, we said something about lunch, and she said, are we all going to lunch? And we said, yeah. And they said, she said, well, you can't do that. There's a private deal going on, and it's not open to the public. So we said, fine. 
And we went down the street to another great museum, the Modern, mm-hmm. and had lunch there. And I would recommend that, too. They have a really, really uh, nice lunch there. And everything from, you know, finger food to some great hamburgers to some heavier stuff. And it's a, it's a pretty big restaurant and fairly easy to get into. And it's worth, the Modern's worth seeing, too. Well, it's just Fort Worth is is a great destination, and uh, it seems like we've had uh, several young people through the nursery the past week or so with their TCU T-shirts and things on, heading yeah. off to get the school year started up there. And uh, Fort Worth is just very much underappreciated, in my opinion, for a lot of different reasons. But uh, you've just given us a few more reasons to spend a little time over there. And if you get there, be sure to not forget to probably close out the day by having a beer at the White Elephant Saloon in the <laughs> Stockyards. You know? That's a, that's a real saloon. And good music always. They always have good live entertainment. I tell you what, I just uh, it makes makes me want to leave town. Unfortunately, I don't get to leave town on weekends very much, but I, I will have to admit I did not know about the White Elephant Saloon, but I'm I'm making notes as we speak here. Oh, yeah, there's always great entertainment there, and it used to be, I don't know if it still is or not, but you used to walk in there, and, you know, Willie Nelson might have walked in and got yep. on stage or some, you know, really heavy-duty people. Don Edwards, uh, who's from the area, you know, was there mm-hmm. quite often, but even the the regular bands that they have in there, every time I've heard anybody in there, it's been really, really good, but it is a... Down and dirty and realistic uh, <laughs> old time uh, uh, saloon. It's it's really good. And the stockyards are still still active there, aren't they? I know oh, they yeah, closed yeah. down the San Antonio stockyards a few years back, but I don't think they'll ever do that in Fort Worth. Well, as far as you mean handling cattle and, yeah. and that sort of thing, I don't know if that, if I don't remember seeing any cattle in in the pens. They probably do, but it's on a very limited basis. The rodeo arena there, of course, is still active and they have uh, rodeos probably on a regular basis and there's all kinds of retail and shops and restaurants and all sorts of things so it's kind of more upscale than than it used to be and there may or may not be still <laughs> cattle being handled in there. well I, I still take mine to fredericksburg but uh it's yeah and they just have their sale days but uh, fort worth is just like i say it's just people just don't appreciate what a wonderful place it is and uh um anyway it's uh, it, it has always been a favorite destination but it's been a long time since i've spent any time up there It'd be a fun thing to do well let me know when you head this way we'll um, go with you you know i will do that well everything else uh rocking along toward fall up there it's uh we just we've we're done, not go ahead we've done one uh new thing that people may uh want to take advantage of we've had it up for the members of the Organic Club of America, speaking of fabulous things, we've yeah. got the fabulous uh, tree slideshow out up for uh, public now. In fact, it was in our last newsletter, so people can click on it, and we're getting some good feedback uh, uh, now from people that hadn't seen it yet. It's pretty good. I recommend you checking it out. Oh, I definitely will, and recommend everybody checking it out. It's, uh, you know, DirtDoctor.com is just, it's just the go-to website. I, I just constantly harp at people that are that are getting things from websites that are not in our part of the country and just getting so much bad information out there it's just it's a it's it's hard to do but i wish we could just get everybody to make that 
just your go-to spot. First place to check is always DirtDoctor.com because Dallas just isn't that different from San Antonio. Your soils are not that far off of ours. Your plant palette is is virtually identical. We're fortunate that we can do more of the tropicals down here in the Bougainvilleas and the Ixoras. And by the way, there's some fantastic new Ixoras out there. I think that's a, a very unused uh plant when it comes to tropical color but uh it's just you know we we pretty much do things the same way timing's just a little bit different but uh uh anyway y'all are you and doug are doing a great job on it well i just taters after somebody in there i just uh, ran into a new plant i was going to ask you about and it's apparently been used a fair amount around here in desert landscaping but I'm doing an area uh, that's going to be really shady, and uh, in fact, I'm taking some grass out to shade for the grass and adding some things. And a guy talked me into trying something that I really raised my eyebrows about, but uh, I'm kind of interested in how it works, and that is to use whale agave, which mm-hmm. I think is a beautiful agave, the big old blue-green leaves and everything, right. in, in shady uh, places. And he's... He swears that uh, it's going to hold up really well in that kind of situation. It's I I question a little bit um, on the cold hardiness on it. The Yavis will take more shade than people realize, and uh, I think in some ways it makes it, it you know delays their flowering, which extends their life, but. Uh, Right. That's a good point. Well, I know that you know we, a lot of people don't think aloe vera will grow in the shade, and right. uh, certainly don't think ginkgo will. And both of those will. So we'll we'll see. I'll, um, I'll give you a report on that. We're going to have uh, I've got one in the ground. Going to have some in some pots. The other thing I'm adding that I haven't planted and used before is uh, ligularia, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently it can take uh, the shade really well and has those dramatic leaves i don't like the variegated one too much with the yellow spots but yeah it <laughs> looks like it's sick yeah. yeah solid green one i think it's pretty cool looking Not well and when it blooms with those yellow flowers it's just absolutely spectacular yeah. when it flowers but and uh yeah it is it is a good shade plant we use a fair amount of it and uh a little bit on the dry side don't don't keep it too wet and uh as always, we don't really talk much about root flares on plants like that, but that's that's another one that if you bury it too deeply, it'll just rot off at ground level. So sure. um, plant, them, plant them a little higher, but uh, yeah, I think that'll be a, a good choice. We Some people like the, the spotted form. They call it leopard plant because of the spots, but right. Uh, right. a lot of other folks <laughs> look at it. And it's kind of like a lot of variegation. I think when... When we live in soils where chlorosis can be such a problem, I don't think the the plants with the yellow foliage are nearly as popular because in a lot of people's eyes they think they look chlorotic or think they look sick. But the well, ligularis category, I totally agree. I went to one of the large residential properties that I consult on that's near me here uh-huh. the other day. Uh, he gets in trouble with stuff and calls me back after he's <laughs> talked to several other people, you know, and they've talked him into planting hybrid maples and oh yeah and, uh, pistachio that i don't of course don't recommend anymore and the latest one and i think the one of his assistants did this put in some uh of the uh, i don't know what it's called but it's a yellow uh privet mm-hmm. and that, there's nothing that looks worse than that to me mm-hmm. i just think it looks like it's sick and about to die and why anybody would want to 
sick-looking yellow plant on purpose is beyond me. <laughs> Privets aren't my favorite to begin with, but no. I know exactly. They call it something or other gold, but maybe maybe if you lived in Pennsylvania or something, that might be a good choice, but uh, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Even at the peak of health, it still looks like it's sick, so... Uh, um, yeah, it's it's not on our list of, of real good things. How is your Carex collection doing? You were, at one point, you were collecting a lot of the different uh, new varieties of Carex out there, and uh, are those holding up well for you through the summer? I'm looking out at some right now. Uh, they're fine, but, you know, like kind of like you're talking about the Ligularia, if you do something really goofy, they're not going to like it. If you keep them too wet or let them get too dry, which I did. I didn't realize I had a sprinkler head covered up. Mm-hmm. They really got in stress, and they've been kind of limping back. But if you keep them just relatively moist, I think it's a, a tough, durable plant, and I like I like several of them. I don't like, the, the, the again, the variegated ones mm-hmm. as much as the green ones, and the Berkeley is one of the darkest greens, the right. the uh, the Texas one, uh, I've got some of it. In fact, that's what I'm looking at right now. It, it's a little bit lighter green. It's pretty, but it's not as dark as the Berkeley eye or Berkeley. And I'm finding most of them like at least half a day of sun. There are some of those that will do in the shade, but uh, they're they're certainly not a deep shade, not a deep shade plant. No, it's it's being used a lot here. It's showing up on the commercial. The landscape architects and contractors obviously have caught on to it because it's starting to show up on a lot of projects. There's one other that I don't remember if I told you about or not, but uh, a, a variety that is that is new to me. Of course, Aspidistra is just has always been one of the go-to plants for deep shade, but there is a new variety out called Tiny Tank, T-A-N-K, and this one only grows maybe 12 inches tall. It is the densest growing aspidistra I've ever seen. And I think it'll make a real pretty pot plant for somebody that's looking for something that's dark green and, you know, a really shady area. But uh, if you haven't seen Tiny Tank, uh, look around, see if any of your folks up there are carrying it yet. Because it's, it's something just different, just something we oh, haven't well, seen. That sounds good, because one of my favorite into in- Interior plants is the sense of area the mother-in-law is talking mm-hmm. I kind of like that dramatic upright growth uh, as a texture change, you know. So I'll, I'll check it out. Well, check out that. And, uh, boy, there are a bunch of new sense of areas out there as well, too. I'm not sure whether they've just suddenly more people are propagating them, but we've got 10, 12 different varieties of sense of area now where it used to be hard to get beyond uh, the old Zalonica and Laurenti and the Hanai, those were sort of the big three, but there must be a dozen or 15, including some round-leaved ones that are really interesting. We're seeing braided sansevierias. You talk about a group of plants that have certainly made a, a big comeback recently. That one certainly has. That's great because they're almost indestructible unless you overwater them. I guess that's about the only thing you can do. Well, or let them freeze. They they really yeah. turn to mush. I was going to ask you, are there any that can take take the winter yet? I haven't found them yet. I haven't okay. found them yet. I got one of those rounded leaf ones. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I've got it in my uh, my office, and I really like it. Well, the cylindrica is the original rounded one that is uh, upright. But there's a new one out there that grows. It looks almost like a candelabra or a menorah or something like that. It just comes up, and the leaves come up, and they go almost horizontal fairly quickly. But they're three-quarters of an inch in diameter and just perfectly round. And 
I'll try to take a picture of that if I get a chance later today and send you. They're just a really pretty thing. And like you say, they are, I tell people, if you can't grow this one, you're going to have to switch to plastic. If you can't grow that indoors, you can't grow anything. That's right. Oh, one of our friends and callers uh, uh, was mentioning this morning, she wanted me to ask you, we were talking about Buddha's belly at some point. And you said you were going to see if you'd come across a botanical name. The one that I'm seeing is a Jutropa. Did you have a chance to look at that yeah, one? Yeah, Jutropa, okay. for sure. Yeah, I thought we talked about that, yeah. in fact. Yeah, that's a great plant. I don't think I ever got back with that doctor who uh, uh, asked me what it was. That reminds me <laughs> I, need to, I need to do that. But, yeah, that's uh, exactly what it is. Very good. Well, Joyce, I'm sure you're still listening, so there's your answer. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, it's always a pleasure. The uh, Quick. Quick tip before we leave, uh, we put some new, uh, some more of my latest art on DirtDoctor.com. Huh. In the, in the, uh, you go to the red button at the top of the page, Buy Books, Art, and Class, which is the online class. You can see the new stuff there. And one thing, if anybody comes this way for the Monet or any, any uh, reason that you're already in this area and you want to see my art in person, we are uh, saying now, uh, that people can call our 866 number, which is on the website, and set up a, an appointment oh. to come by and uh, and check it out. So if anybody's interested, uh, give us a give us a call. And don't forget that the proceeds from this support Torque, which is a really really good organization right. promoting uh, the things that our ideals. And um, you know, it's not too early to start talking about fa- the fact that uh, folks planning their charitable giving for the years that. Uh, it is, uh, what is it, 401c3 or whatever. It's uh, fully tax-deductible. It's, it's a legit 501c3, and it's uh, no tax on the art and deductible if you still have you know the ability to deduct something. Some people have already gone their limit. Well, enjoyed it as always, Bob. Let's do it again next week. Let's have do it. Idea. You have a uh, wonderful Labor Day, and uh, give all the four-legged members of your family a pet and give the ladies a hug for me. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Howard. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, and as we were talking, dirtdoctor.com, best site on the Internet. The Organic Club of America, that's something costs you a few dollars a year to join, but uh, it's sort of a a member side where you have access to even more information up there. And gosh, I've been a member for as long as I can remember, and I recommend it very, very highly to you. But above all, when you're looking for gardening information that is applicable to our part of Texas, check out DirtDoctor.com because you have to dig around some, but uh, uh, there's just a wealth of information there for you. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Yeah, i got a couple of yard problems. Uh, I've got some new zoysia grass down, and I'm starting to get a lot of that nut grass that's showing up in the zoysia. Is there any way I can treat that? I pulled about a thousand pieces of that nut grass up, but it's to overtake me. Yeah, you'll never, never pull it up. Uh, Nutsedge cannot stand high microbial activity. And we have found that the very best way to get rid of it is with uh, molasses. Uh, a little bit more concentrated than you normally do, probably maybe about four or five tablespoons per gallon. And you need to uh, not just spray, but kind of saturate the areas where, uh, uh, you know, where your nut sedge is. It doesn't work overnight, 
But if you'll do the molasses treatment, wait about three weeks, do it a second time, just all of a sudden you'll notice the nuts edge just isn't there anymore. It just yellows and browns out. And in the dry times, it works a whole lot better than in real moist times. So that's how I would be going after your nuts edge. Uh-huh. Would it, will it hurt the zoysia or any? As long as you don't get it uh, overly concentrated, no. Um, if it were me, I might hold off a week or two, let it cool down just a little bit. I mean, the weathermen have been so far off, saying high of 92 and we get to 104 instead. And if this intense heat continues, it could cause a little bit of yellowing. It won't cause any long-term problems, but... Um, I might wait a, wait a week or two before I really start going after it just to be on the safe side. Yeah, the Zoysia is a new installation, so I've got yeah. to do anything with it. Yeah, well, it will. the molasses is going to really help the soil. It's going to really help uh, your grass long term. We just kind of have to balance it. Uh, nut sedge is, is a sedge. It's not a grass. And so it's one of those things that we can uh, kill without harming a good grass. So uh, that's the way I would go after it. Okay, uh, one other question. In my uh, older established lawn, I'm getting a lot of that, I, I guess you call it the wild Bermuda. It's stringy. Mm-hmm. You can see the strings growing up. It, 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 you know, it grows faster than the, than the grass. Uh, and is your basic yard but, grass one of the other Bermudas, or is it St. Augustine? Uh, well, I've got zoysia and uh, tip Bermuda in the, in the uh, lawn. Okay. I would mow a little more often and perhaps mow slightly lower. We don't want to go real low while it's still hot, but uh, that's the best way I've found because zoysia and, uh, is, is strong enough to totally choke out uh, your other wilder Bermuda strains. But uh, mow down a little bit lower. You'll take care of a lot of those runners that just almost seem to come up on top of the ground. Okay, maybe that's what's happening. I haven't mowed because the grass just doesn't seem to be growing anyway. No, no I would I would mow anyway and set that, uh, set that blade down just a little bit lower, and I think you'll control that just fine. Okay, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Al. Thank you, sir. Ah, next up is Scott. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, sir. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I've got a problem uh, with um, raccoons and birds. Oh, here. boy. Yeah. And I got a question for you because I know you know things. Um, would it make any sense if I were to uh, put some kind of feeder that's easy for the raccoons to get to kind of in the back corner of the yard? Would that encourage them to leave the bird feeders alone? <laughs> <laughs> only until they clean out that feeder and the problem is you will attract every raccoon in the neighborhood and um do you have pets do you have dogs and things yes yeah, yeah. i have dogs raccoons carry leptospirosis and a couple of other nasty things that uh um generally raccoons well they they can be dangerous animals to dogs. For some strange reason, they seem to get along with cats pretty well. But uh, I'm not going to encourage you to do anything okay. that brings more raccoons into the yard. All right. Well, I'll figure out a way to get the, the bird feeders a little further away from the trees. To I, I'm hanging them from trees, and they they'll, the raccoon will do a uh, contortionist routine <laughs> and hang from the tree and scoop over the bird feeder. They suck it dry. Right? You know, it's uh, they're 
they are incredibly clever. I'll never forget when my business partner and her husband were on one of their motorcycle trips, and they stopped in a park somewhere, and they had these big old concrete vaults for you to store your food and things in. And she asked the ranger, said, y'all must have a real bear problem. He said, bears? No. He said, these are to stop the raccoons. So, yeah, wow. they're, they are they are tough. They, uh, uh, I would, and, and they're just, it, they're, they're so clever. I would suggest hanging your feeders just with a single strand of wire. Don't ever use chain because they just run right up and down chain. And um, it's, oh, okay. yeah, it's. Um, okay. call, call wild birds unlimited. I know, uh, Bill's going to be there even on labor day. Cause I talked to him yesterday to find out and ask him, there are some pretty good baffle type things that it's kind of like a, you know, a big smooth dome that the raccoons can't get around. They, <laughs> and it's a little humorous. They step out on them and then they fall off and land on the ground. Oh, there but we go. There are, uh, and I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure if it's droll Yankee, but I think there's some pretty good deflectors that'll help keep the raccoons away from the bird feeders. But call Wild Birds Unlimited. The number's 479-BIRD, 210-479-BIRD. And uh, ask Bill what their latest is in deterring the raccoons, because there there's some really clever systems out there that will work. Thank you, sir. Can I ask you about pre-emergent? Yes, what, sir. What should I use? Well, I I am not a fan of uh, any of the pre-emergents. Uh, of course, the only one I would ever use would be the corn gluten meal. But is this for your your grassy areas? Yes, sir. I have a terrible problem with with weeds from from last year yeah that i'm still trying to overcome i will tell you that my experience has been and you need to wait for it to cool down a little bit but that thin layer of compost over the yard is the best natural pre-emergent that i have ever found and i mean i have totally eliminated sticker burrs crabgrass uh still have some dandelions and things but that's where i'm going to start is an op- application of compost and then after we have our first frost, it tends to brown the grass out. I'll go out anytime anything green starts coming up. I'll hit it with the vinegar and orange oil, and uh, uh, you know, and it just kills it on the spot. The problem with pre-emergence, they don't kill the seeds. They keep the little seedling from forming a root system as it comes up. And the past three or four years, our weather has just been such that pre-emergence weren't effective. But uh, try the compost in the area where you well, have I- the worst, and I think you'll help. Yes, sir. I, I did that in the uh, in the spring, and it did it did help. But my my yard went from uh, being mostly grass to mostly weeds over last summer. Yep. Uh, last spring, and uh, but yeah, the 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 compost it it helped quite a bit. But I still have um, a, about a third of the yard that that short leafy. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, Yellow flower. Leaf yeah. Weed. Yeah. Just. It's just thick, and the pre-emergent, like I say, I mean the uh, the the compost helps, but yeah. it just well. It, unfortunately, it, that particular weed is a perennial, and pre-emergents only work on annuals. So yeah, let's talk about the first of October, and I'll tell you if there are any other things we've come up with that are going to help you against that stuff. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm, bye. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Morning. Well, uh, not only did the uh, drop down a little bit cooler this morning down here, uh, there's less humidity, so it's out there in the yard already. 
And, Lucky uh, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially with that humidity. Oh, listen, I'm 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 wishing we could just uh, get some of that good rain and you know drop that humidity and just move back into a little more comfortable season. But it'll happen. We just don't know when. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, so I'm out there with my uh, pygmy Mexican key lime pie. Okay. Key lime, uh, key lime uh, tree. Uh-huh. And, that's it. and um, I was trimming, uh, you know, it's it's uh, approximately seven feet tall and, and, you know, has a few of those uh, branches that start extending beyond that. And, right. Uh, so those were the ones I was trimming off. And uh, you had said earlier, you know, about keeping the uh, root flares exposed on all trees. Right. And uh, would you call, you know, a good size trunk uh that this thing has now i don't see much of i guess i don't know what a flare is but uh, uh does that also have to be kept exposed the the plant will do much better and i probably should instead of just talking about trees should just say woody shrubs and trees because uh every woody plant and this is all things other than palms and cycads Really, they have a different structure to the bark above and below ground level. Uh, below ground level, the the bark, as it were, on the roots and other things is more or less waterproofed. Above ground level, it's not. So, yes, that certainly applies to your key lime, whether it's tree form, whether it's bush form. And what you need to do is just, and you may be able to do this with a hose or something, just wash the soil away down to the point that you see those major roots of the tree. And typically yeah. the base of the trunk will kind of broaden out a little bit. It will flare out a little bit. And that is the point that we want to always have the, the trunk exposed down to so we're, where we've got air circulating around it rather than soil or mulch or anything else that would impede the airflow. Okay, yeah, uh, I did get it down. Uh, it, it sits uh, kind of like a low spot in my yard. Yeah. And, uh, um, so I really have to get down there, lay down, and, you know, pull the dirt that's <laughs> covering it up and everything. It's worth the effort. It'll increase the numbers of fruit that you have, and a person can oh, really? simply not have too many good uh, key limes. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Also, um, as far as uh, trimming those uh, extenders and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, that's not a problem or an issue is it you know every every bit you take off reduces the you know the potential for it to make even more fruit but you're certainly not going to hurt the tree you're just you're cosmetically improving it a little bit but you're not benefiting the tree but you're not hurting the tree so you just uh uh can be kind of a thorny little job so uh but yeah you're well, certainly is, not uh, hurting anything this is a thornless oh okay uh, key lime okay uh how many of the of these thornless type key limes are there do you know um i only know of of, of the one it's uh, oh, okay. mainly propagated by uh, brassus citrus nursery uh, and they're the ones that have spread it around yeah it's it's a very much improved form nice thing about all limes is at least the little spines are short but if you've got the thornless one man you've got the best of both worlds great great and the other thing that i was noticing as i was pruning these you know extenders um that none of them uh have any um uh, limes grown on them, and so I was wondering yeah. why that is. Uh, it would it would be next year. They call those water sprouts, and usually it takes a, a year or two before they start making the floral parts. But uh, I, you, you may be encouraging the tree to produce more fruit closer 
to the main trunk. So, yeah, you're not hurting anything at all there, Mike. Okay. Wow, fantastic. Well, thank you again, Bob. Great show. Always a pleasure. And you have a good day and a good Labor Day.